I'm Luke Story. For the past 22 years, I've been relentlessly committed to my deepest passion, designing the ultimate lifestyle based on the most powerful principles of spirituality, health, psychology, and personal development. The Lifestylist Podcast is a show dedicated to sharing my discoveries and the experts behind them with you. I want you to be honest with yourself right now. Are you getting enough greens into your diet? Now, if you're a vegan and you're someone that eats tons of salads, maybe you are. But are you getting enough superfoods into your diet? In other words, are you getting the dense nutrition that comes in green herbs and superfoods? Maybe you are, maybe you're not. But one thing I can guarantee is that if you're going out and juicing and doing green smoothies, you're spending a grip of cash. I mean, a green juice here in Los Angeles, where I'm currently recording, can cost you up to 13 $14. And if you leave it in your car on a hot summer day, uh, that $14 can turn into something putrid real quick. This is why I love Organifi.com. Organifi.com forward slash Luke is where I get my Organifi green juice. Really good stuff. Super easy to mix into water. Tastes delicious. Has no glycemic index. In other words, no sugar. Doesn't spike your blood sugar. It's got all sorts of healing, energizing, alkalizing herbs in it. And it tastes bomb. Easy to travel with. Easy to use. And it is super affordable, especially when you compare it to the waste and the inconvenience of fresh green juices and smoothies. So go to Organifi.com, that's spelled with an I, Organifi.com forward slash Luke. And I've got even better news for you. If you use the code lifestylist at Organifi.com, you're going to save 20% off your order. Trigger warning, ladies and gentlemen, it's now time to put on your big boy and big girl pants because we're keeping it real in this episode with our second time guest, Dr. Kelly Brogan, MD. She's a holistic psychiatrist and the author of the New York Times bestselling book, A Mind of Your Own, a true classic. She also just released a brand new book called Your Own Self, The Surprising Path Beyond Depression, Anxiety, and Fatigue to Reclaiming Your Authenticity, Vitality, and Freedom. And let me tell you what, this episode has a lot to do with freedom. Sure, we talk about the depression, the anxiety, the things like that, that we all want freedom from, but we also talk about freedom of speech and freedom of alternative health choices and autonomy as individual free-thinking, free-living people. This might be my most controversial episode ever, so I'm just going to warn you. It's not like you got to keep the kids away. They won't even know what we're talking about. I don't think there's a lot of foul language per se, Um, not that kind of controversy. It's not racy, but some of the subject matter covered, I think, is really going to uh, stretch some people's uh, current belief paradigms and um, hopefully awaken some new ideas in you. So I'd love to encourage you at this point just to keep an open mind. Be willing to let go of some of your old ideas, let some new ideas in. You'll know when you hear the truth. And uh, Kelly Brogan is not short on that quality. Much truth discussed. Before we get into the episode, I'd like to invite you to visit my web store at lukestory.com forward slash store, where you will find so many biohacking health devices and supplements You won't know what to do with yourself when you get over there. Everything is neatly categorized according to what your issue is. And uh, I make it really easy to shop and save you the time and energy of going out and finding the best of the best because I am, thankfully for you, 
really obsessive about finding the best products in the world. So I'm the one that's going to read every ingredient. I'm going to reach out to the CEO of the company. I'm going to grill them on uh, the ingredients, how it's made, where it's made, who made it, all of that kind of stuff. So rest assured, anything you find at lukestory.com forward slash store is the best I've been able to find anywhere, whether that's an herb, supplement, device, etc. It's also a great way to get yourself some discounts. Most of the products there are brands that I have affiliates with. And of course, I always do my best to get you discounts. And it's also a good way to support the show. So that's lukestory.com forward slash store. Next week's show is a doozy, folks. It's another one recorded on location uh, outside of the US. I'm trying to do more of that, actually. I'll be off to London this week to record a ton of episodes in the UK. This one's called The Mexico Show, Farm to Table, Wildlife Preserve Eco Resort. So this one was a full immersion podcast where I went down to two properties, one called Cuixmala and the other one called Hacienda de San Antonio, two insanely cool properties, eco-preserves, biodynamic farms, organic coffee plantations, just the whole deal. Uh, Really cool people doing really cool things. And part of my mission is to support people that have conscious businesses. And so I had a really great opportunity to go down and record Uh, with the owner of these two resorts, Alix. And she is a fascinating and really funny lady. So that's next week's show. But anyway, back to uh, Kelly Brogan here. Here's what we talk about in this episode. Alchemizing crisis into growth. Kelly's pharmaceutical red pill awakening, meaning the moment she stopped prescribing psych meds to her patients. Getting past the victimhood model. The idea that pharmaceuticals aren't the wrong answer for everyone, but they're definitely not the right answer for everyone either the real root cause of mental disorders and how psych drugs are often at the base of almost all mass shootings. Why Kelly doesn't believe in many psychiatric diagnoses, the downfall of mainstream media and fake news, the tyrannical big tech censorship currently devastating the First Amendment, including the blatant, and in my opinion, quite dangerous censorship of Google search algorithms and how they're tanking Kelly's web traffic along with so many other natural health leaders. You guys, we cannot allow this to happen. I don't know what we're going to do about it. Spreading awareness is maybe the key. I might even get banned for some of the shit we talk about in this particular episode, but what are you going to do? I'm going to go down fighting. I got to bring you the truth. We also talk about the dangers of vaccines and the lack of any scientific proof that they actually work, the folly of choosing side effects over spiritual effort, the realm of belief versus the realm of science, and finally. Your invitation from Kelly and myself, for that matter, to live a pharma-free life. So sit back, enjoy, get ready to have your mind blown by Dr. Kelly Brogan. Welcome back to the Lifestylist Podcast, Kelly. I'm pumped to be here. Oh man, I'm so stoked. I'm so glad you're putting out a new book. You know, when people uh, are on the show once there's not always an impetus to have them on again or to have them request to come on again until they have kind of a new project. So when you reached out and was like, hey, guess what? I got a new book. I was like, yes. Because I feel last time, I think we did kind of a shorter interview, if I recall, is perhaps a little bit under an hour. And I've become a bit spoiled uh, at this point. And I get to sit down with people oftentimes in person and we'll go for like two or three hours, like Joe Rogan style, you know? Mm -hmm. And um, (laughs) so I was like, oh, there's so many things we didn't talk about. And now having been a couple of years later, um, there's so much more to talk about. 
So Probably better I am, that way. A little dose of me up front is typically better. <laughs> I'm, yeah, right. A little intro. No, I can take everything you're dishing out. Trust me. Like, I know you can. I love I, it. I like the hardcore truth. Um, so let's just start off by talking about your new book, which is we managed to coincide the release of it. Um, it's called Your Own Self. It comes out September 17th, which is the exact Tuesday that this episode we're recording now will drop. So give us a little preview of what that's about. And we'll, of course, talk a bit about more, uh, more about it later. But I just want to start off with something new and exciting. Yeah. So essentially, the timing of it seems auspicious at this point because, you know, in the, in the book world, there's such a lag. It's like a dinosaur kind of process. And I finished a lot of this material now well over a year ago. And it strikes me as never more relevant than in this moment we find ourselves in right now with, you know, figurative book burning and a real reach. Um, on the part of industry and the authorities we have um, sworn to trust into and over the realms of our bodily sovereignty. And so I think the only antidote to that is understanding how to generate awareness around where it is that you're permitting outside sources or forces to hold your power, right? Because it's not like it's not the victim story we might imagine it to be where they're just controlling us and fucking us over and all this stuff. We give it away. And, and this has been known since antiquity. You know, We give our power away and, and we give it away unknowingly. And until you are aware of it, you don't actually have a choice, right? So it's that awareness that presents the opportunity for reclamation. And that's a lot of what I you know, seek to provide kind of some very practical tips for, for navigation around, but then also what I've seen to be almost like the archetypal journey from the the state of dependency, whether it's on the medical system or on your morning coffee or on a toxic relationship um, to the, the state of uh, liberation, really, and, and, and sovereignty. And of course, through the lens of reframing Suffering as being something we optionally engage and how to begin to alchemize crisis and, and struggle um, into something that, that serves your growth. Oh, that's awesome. I know a little or a lot about uh, all of those things you just talked about. We all do, right? Yeah. We all do, right? Yeah. And so it's, it's you know, I, you know that I don't really believe in, in mental illness as we've been told about it. Um, and I certainly don't believe that people are, you know, broken or damaged or sick for good, which is the gene-based model of allopathic medicine. So I, I'm not really sure that any of us are really all that different in terms of the things we struggle with. We just have different defenses. You know, like I have a defensive structure that's really adaptive for the dominant paradigm. You know, the ways that I hide my soft parts and my shameful parts and my tender parts, you know, society likes it. Right. So it's it's like that's the only difference between me and one of my patients who might have a different kind of defensive structure that's more self-effacing or, you know, self-negating that leads them to to hide or withdraw, you know. So we really all share this kind of darkness within. And it's just a matter of of helping each other um, to own it. So there's kind of just different shades of coping mechanisms and we we are either repelled or attracted to those coping mechanisms just kind of based on our personality type or a combination of nurture or, or, or nature. So someone like me will go into historically 
addictive patterns, compulsive patterns in, in an effort to avoid or numb pain or just to, to avoid the process of going through difficult period. Yes. Whereas someone else might just become very rigid and controlling and, you exactly. know, is like straight edge or something like that, you know, but it's... That's it's, exactly me. You, right? So I'm the latter. Yeah. Right. So exactly. before we get into some stuff that I think for, not maybe for listeners of this show that are seasoned, because I, I like to go on the, you know, fringes of sharing information and I love information that's not widely available. I love information that's not part of the mainstream narrative before we kind of go off the deep end and probably get into some stuff that's a bit controversial. um, Drop some credentials on us so that people can understand, um, not like you need to prove yourself to me or most of the people in our audience, but you're not like some kook from Sedona that is just coming out saying, I don't believe in mental illness or pharmaceutical medications. I mean, you're extremely well-respected and educated. You've got a bunch of degrees on your wall that I'm sure um, mean something. I can't quite read the details of them, but they look official. So give us a little bit of your background, you know, and how you started out in the more traditional realm of psychiatry and kind of, you know, what, yeah. where you stand, you know, in terms of education and um, where you originally started out and how you've kind of morphed into a deeper and a more broad understanding. Yeah. So this is something on a spiritual level, I've been working to reconcile uh, at this stage in my life, really trying to understand how it is that to this day I still am using, you know, my credentials. I'm still, I still have that one little energetic tether to the very system that I am seeking to walk away from, right? So, right. And, and I and I understand that part of the reason I do is because there are people like me out there um, who need to go through a certain portal in order to get where they're destined to uh, arrive. Right, which is in an entirely different uh, worldview, entirely different perspective, and in, in a new paradigm. You know, I came through the portal of science uh, myself as somebody who has a lot of, you know, like you, like you alluded to, controlling tendencies, and who very much has the sort of like know-it-all kind of shadow material. I myself only began to question. All of my training and the you know two hundred thousand dollars of debt and the blood, sweat, and tears of really the indentured servitude of, of the medical training model. It's it's pretty gnarly. You know, it's it's not unlike the military or fraternity system where there's this hierarchy, and you know, so to 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 ascend those ranks, invest all of that, and then be given an opportunity to throw it all out or question it, you know, in an undermining way. That only really happens if you yourself as a physician, um, have to confront its its limitations. And normally that's through a health crisis. So any of the renegade doctors that you encounter, almost all of us have, have gone rogue because we ourselves had a health crisis that, you know, sort of pushed us to question whether we wanted to participate in the system that we were otherwise purveying, mm-hmm. you know, so I was, so died in the wool. I mean, I believed so much in conventional medicine that I literally specialized in prescribing pharmaceuticals to pregnant and breastfeeding women. That was <laughs> oh, shit. so I thought it was that legit that you know right. it was also safe for this most vulnerable population. So I was one of the, oh, the first 300 doctors on the planet to specialize in that. And it wasn't until I myself was pregnant 
you know, during synchronistically during that same window that I just kind of had this weird feeling. It was very inconvenient that like I wouldn't want to take the Zoloft I was prescribing to the pregnant woman in front of me as a pregnant woman myself. Wow. Even though I knew the data cold, you know, the the lens through which I was looking, you know, the 25,000 cases in the medical literature and that there wasn't a signal of teratogenicity. And, you know, for the most part, the illness out, the risks of the illness outweigh the risks of the pharmaceutical and here's your prescription, right? And I, I sort of felt like, well, I, it just doesn't feel right. There's gotta be another option, right? There's gotta be a better way. And I just ignored that until I was diagnosed with Hashimoto's thyroiditis, which is a now um, seemingly epidemic autoimmune condition. And that was when I said, you know, I don't want to take a pharmaceutical product, even though I believed in them completely. I just didn't want to participate. Something in me, some rebellious, like, I'm going to figure this out myself, you know, kind of know it all piped up. And I went to the medical literature and that was the beginning of the end of my my process, but it was through through the lens of science that I discovered um, all of the relevant literature, not all, but so much of the relevant literature on lifestyle medicine. It wasn't because I had any like bohemian leanings or even a, a sense of what spirituality meant or a sense of the legitimacy of natural medicine because I'd only ever been taught that it's something to malign and dismiss actually as as dangerous right we're we're taught in our training that supplements are are unregulated and dangerous and meanwhile you know properly prescribed pharmaceuticals are the third leading cause of death in this nation so it's it's just sort of could you say that again <laughs> I love that. I mean, I, I don't love, I love it. It's like, oh, that's awesome. I love it that it's like, that's how fucking backward we are as a species it's, it's right really, now. It's really, you know, it's like you could tear your hair out about it. And, and I had my sword off for many years. But the truth is, it's just the nature of the system, right? right? So you wouldn't go, I always say, like, you wouldn't go to a butcher to learn about veganism. Know your medium, right? Like, know what it is. Know the source of your information, and I know you know we may touch on that, but it's it's just a matter of generating awareness of a system and pulling the blinders off and adultifying to an extent where we understand that the medical system itself cannot be the object of our dependency because if it if it is, then we are choosing not to understand the nature of the system. And it's it's just how it is. Of course, they're not going to teach that anything in the lifestyle realm is relevant to your health outcome, right? Because the nature of the system is such that you are really you really don't have any measure of control, right? It's the one gene to one ill to one pill model, right? So so in that model you discover something internally wrong. Like how is your machine broken? You go to the mechanic and the mechanic says, well, you need this patch and you better keep that patch on for life because otherwise it's just gonna continue breaking down. And that's a certain belief system. And it may be the belief system of some of the folks listening. It was mine as well. But there, if you choose to transform that belief system and have it a different perspective, you'll find a great incompatibility with that system that really doesn't give you any leeway to operate your own machine, let alone understand the inherent um, meaning or purpose or poetry of that organism. 
Yeah, I think you touched on a really important point, and that is, you know, most of us that start expanding our vision outside of the norm, whether it be in psychiatry or spirituality or any any aspect of human life, we're usually, you know, victims of inertia and laziness, and we kind of just keep doing what we're doing, right, until there's some turning point in your face with some challenge that you can't overcome. And when that happens, there's sort of two choices you have. One is to outsource that to the establishment and kind of follow what everyone else is doing. And many of us do that until it doesn't work. And then we're left like in a real crisis point where, wow, I did what the authoritative voices are telling me to do. And even that didn't work, be it science or whatever. And then we start to go into the fringes and and, and look elsewhere. I mean, when I was maybe 28, 29 years old, which is only like two years ago, um, I was, I, I, uh, no, it was a long ass time ago thinking back, but you know, I, I had just gone to rehab. I just, you know, escaped, thank God, you know, and have still remained escaped um, from just horrific addictions to everything imaginable. And it's, I had all these symptoms, kind of what I would call now just kind of untreated alcoholism is is what I would say it was um, in, in a sense, and that I had been self-medicating for, you know, since I was a kid, literally, and then just took all that away and had no replacement coping mechanisms. So I remember going to a really fancy psychiatrist in, um, and I think it was in Century City, you know, in one of the high rises. And it was, it's like $450 an hour or something back then. This is like the late 90s. Yeah. And I explained my symptoms. I said, yeah, I just, my mind is just racing all the time. I'm worrying about the future. I'm regretting the past. Um, I didn't even know how to label things as depression or anxiety, but I just described like someone who doesn't have a spiritual um, way of life yet, yeah. you know, and I had been exposed to the 12 step model and things like that. And I was starting to make a little headway, but I was still experiencing the symptoms of just having that neurosis and that dis-ease being untreated because I didn't have drugs and alcohol. And within five minutes, he's like, oh yeah, you have this disorder or that disorder. I don't remember what the diagnosis was. He's like, I've got this new thing. It's called Effexor. It's going to be great. I said, oh my God. He's like, oh yeah, when you take this, like you'll just be present and you won't be worried about anything. You'll be happy all the time. I was like, this is fucking amazing. Any side effects? No, no, you'll be fine. And within like three months, I mean, it was like, if I started to run out, I would be calling my doctor and he would be stashing like sample packs literally outside of this building, like a drug. I mean, it was exactly like being on drugs. My dealer was now just a more expensive dealer. <laughs> and, but it was, I was like addicted to these psych meds and I was crazier than ever. It made me so compulsive, so neurotic, so obsessive. And that was when I kind of turned my back on you know, that industry for answers and was like, wow, there's got to be something else. And then went into all of the things that I feature on my show now from, you know, holistic physical health practices to spiritual pursuits and all those things. But I think the, the point you're raising is really important that A, most of us get to that point and then we give up on the system and we start doing our own research and having that sense of personal responsibility, getting out of the victimhood model, um, learning how to have a, a sense of authority in our own lives and seeking information that's a little more fringe and trying things out. But a lot of people don't even know there are other options and they just keep pursuing that same dead end. Well, maybe that doctor gave me the wrong medicine, right? Exactly. So I'm just going to go also, see a different one. Yeah. And then you're still in the hamster wheel. You're in the hamster wheel. And it's also the, again, the framing, right? It's, it's how are we uh, being encouraged to perceive the prescribing of effects are from a doctor who has degrees on the wall, a stethoscope around his neck versus, you know, hitting up your dealer for 
you know, amphetamine or whatever. Why are we encouraged to see those differently? And there are many people before me, Peter Bregan and uh, Joanne Moncrief and, and whistleblowers from within the hallowed halls of psychiatry who have basically encouraged us to reframe psychiatric medications as substances of influence, right? And to look at the drug-based effects of these chemicals. I, I'm not proselytizing moralism, right? If you, if for you it works best to engage chemical, you know, based altered states of consciousness, which is what psychiatric medications induce, if that works for you, wonderful, right? We should all have a large menu of, of choices available to us. But where I struggle is that doctors are not in a position to provide true informed consent. So when you go to the doctor, you're not being told this is a chemical that induces an altered state in your brain. May work for you or you may be, you know, shooting up the post office next week or, you know, hanging yourself in your garage. We don't know. Is that cool with you, right? And by the way, it's also in a category of the most habit-forming chemicals on the planet that makes opiates, alcohol, and crack cocaine look like a walk in the park to withdraw from. Are you okay with that? And can you do your own personal calculus in the setting of the greater context that says this is not a, um, a healing intervention, right? We are not resolving anything. In fact, we are creating a new neurochemical normal for you in the same way that any substance of influence would do, right? And if you look at it through that lens, then you can make your own decision. You can be empowered to make your own decision. And obviously, the beauty of the internet as it stands right now, maybe for a little bit longer, is that you can do your own research, you can inform yourself, and then you can go and you can take you know, what the butcher says about veganism with a grain of salt because you know it's coming from that source, right? right. So this is, this is the challenge that I'm grappling with because as you said, when you are aware of the greater context and when you know what else is possible, right? So maybe around the death of my mentor, so in 2015, I I had a new layer of my onion peeled, you know, so to speak. And I really understood that I had to stop fighting, fighting anything. And that I, I really needed to shift all of my energetic focus to making sure to really celebrate and promote and um, you know be be a, a, a channel for the transmission of what's possible. Because right. if you know that chronic recidivistic multiple medication requiring uh, schizophrenia is resolvable in the space of months, that there is a transformation possible there, then maybe you would make a different choice. You know, if you know that suicidal depression can be treated with lifestyle medicine in the space of a couple of months and that, you know, you can live medication and diagnosis free for the rest of your life, you might make a different choice, you know? And if you know how challenging it can be to come off these medications, well then you might make a different choice. So it's just about knowing what's what's possible, then you can feel for your own internal yes. Yeah, that's that's really powerful, and that's going to lead me perfectly. Uh, thank you for the segue, unintentional segue. Before I do that, though, before I kind of divert on this other topic that I'm just jonesing to um, to explore with you, the censorship and all of the the limited information that's starting to happen. But um, in the case of the 
physical and mental, emotional dependency on these types of medication. I mean, I'm someone who has subjective experience with that. And mm -hmm. I had, you know, quit, well, at that time I hadn't quit smoking cigarettes, but I've quit, you know, the most addictive drugs literally that exist on the planet, illicit street drugs, right? Just imagine what they are. I, I get in trouble all the time for <laughs> being too graphic, but you know, <laughs> I was a I was an incorrigible drug addict. I mean, like if you watch the show Intervention, I was that guy. I mean, it's hard to believe, I think, for some people now, because I'm is. pretty wacky yeah. still, I think. I'm a, I have a colorful personality, but I kind of have my shit together um, on a good day. <laughs> but I have to say, when I was on that effectser and I finally started realizing, like, wow, this isn't helping. I'm just, I can't cry. I can't laugh. I'm just in this weird gray tunnel. And, um, you know, the side effects were just becoming so apparent. And even people around me were like, dude, are you okay? Like, all you do is refinish furniture all day like a tweaker. I mean, that's, that, that's what it did to me. It really made me like, and I was never addicted to crystal meth, but I, I had done it. And it was very much like that. Just super single focused, <laughs> obsessive. I just could only do one thing and I couldn't get out of it. And it would, hours would go by every day and I would just be tweaking. And I was like, this does not feel sober. <laughs> you know, This doesn't feel yeah. balanced. And then when I tried to come off it, oh my God. I mean, now I'm getting some insight into, you know, the issue with all these mass shootings and stuff. If you look at those, for example, I think every single one of these kids that goes off the rails there is on psych meds and it's people true. are like pointing their finger at guns and yeah, it helps them to have a gun, especially a gun that shoots fast and all that. Different conversation we probably don't have or at least I don't have qualifications to get into or want to get off on a political tangent. But the fact is, is that I remember how crazy I felt and yeah. how I, I mean, I would have road rage and I would have suicidal thoughts and all this stuff that I never even had before I was on the medication. This I mean, is, um, I got crazier for medication that was supposed to make me not crazy. So, and I had no idea that that was even a possibility when my psychiatrist right. and God bless him, I'm sure he was well-meaning and, you know, was perhaps just ill-informed. There was no talk of like, hey, heads up, this could help. But if it doesn't, you might be on this for the rest of your life and you might hurt yourself or hurt other people. I mean, it's like if you read the labels on most pharmaceutical drugs, it's like could include suicide, anal bleeding. I mean, it's like, you know, the, <laughs> the side effects of these drugs were just like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But does it work fast? Will it fix me without me having to do any work on myself? Yeah, give me that. You know, and that's kind that's of- That's what they do now. You know, a lot of these medications, Wellbutrin, Cymbalta, Effexor, they have these warnings actually in the, the package insert about homicidality. And it's a, um, a sort of like, ooh, trying to clean up post hoc, you know, like after the public experiment has been uh, engaged, then they actually do often the industry goes back, puts it in there. Of course, it's liability after they lose, you know, millions to billions of dollars in settlements. Um, but what you're describing is actually the one area around uh, free choice to engage this model of self-medication because that's essentially what it is, as we've been discussing, that is complex, right? Because I would like to say, free world, make your choice. You want to take seven psychotropics, do your thing, right? I hope you have the information you need in the time you need it. But in the end, you know, it's up to you. The the wrinkle in that is what you're alluding to and, and what really got me incensed when I started to learn about what I had never been taught in my training, which is that we don't have a way to risk stratify who is going to experience impulsive violence, 
And that violence can be, as you said, towards self or towards other. And we have some data to suggest that actually, if we were to investigate and interrogate liver-based enzymes, so what are called cytochromes, that we would have a sense for who would be at risk for the kind of, it's actually called an intoxication profile that you experienced. And what happens is on the outside, you could look pretty chill. You could look very calm. I mean, one of my activist colleagues, David Carmichael, I mean, he was prescribed Paxil for like work-related stress and ended up killing his 11-year-old son in a state of intoxication that within 72 hours of discontinuing the medication wore off completely. And he had to reckon with the fact that this was you know, permanent damage done to his and many others lives. And he would be the first to say, no, I, people actually thought I was fine, you know, getting better even. It's not like you act crazy all the time. Like sometimes your friends notice something odd, but it's very um, idiosyncratic how it presents. And we don't know who is going to be vulnerable to that. And it is an altered state of consciousness. Sometimes it presents with this state of inner restlessness called akathisia, which is a neurologic phenomenon. And sometimes it doesn't. And you can go on to make Kim Witzak, another activist colleague of mine, I mean, her husband never experienced a day of suicidality in his life, wasn't even depressed because 60 some percent of prescriptions are written by primary care doctors for what's called off-label you know, uh, prescribing where people don't even meet criteria. And we could go into what that criteria even means or represents um, for diagnostic and statistical manual labels, right? So they, in his case, get prescribed you know, Zoloft for some insomnia he was having, again, work-related, you know, stress-induced. And he started talking about this feeling, like the sensation that his head was coming off his body. And five, you know, five weeks, I think, into treatment, um, she found him hanging in in their garage. So, you know, this is um, oh man, it's one thing when it's to you know to self, but the public health risk. How do we discuss this, right? So, what happens when it becomes a public health um, endanger, endangerment issue? Should we still be allowed to engage substances that have a documented potential to induce uh, mass homicide and violence? I don't know the answer. Seems like we should probably cease and desist until we have more information, or at least have a means of identifying who would be at risk. Right. Well, it's just—it's funny. I mean, now, now I think the um, you take a a drug, you know, air quotes like uh, cannabis, right? Which I don't—I yeah. don't personally use recreationally, but I, I used to. I enjoyed it quite a bit. It's quite the stoner back in the day, and it was great. It helped me get through some tough times in childhood, and I think it was great medicine. But now doesn't serve me in that way. You look at something like this, right? That's just, you literally go out in your backyard, pick a plant at a certain time, dry it out, smoke it, cook with it, whatever. And it has really powerful medicinal qualities, but it's been demonized as if it's as dangerous as some of the drugs that you're describing, right? Like, you know, it's the reefer madness thing from whenever that was the fifties, you know, the reefer madness film, how you're going to smoke weed and go around and rape people. And it's just (laughs) like, we look back at this propaganda now and kind of, ah, that's cute, but it still really is in effect, um, in many ways, you know, where even things that are psychoactive that, and we'll get into this a bit later, cause I want to talk about psychedelics with you, but it's like, it's just still crazy and mind boggling when you step out of the matrix, like you have, and like I have, and so many people are beginning to now, 
is that you're like, well, wait a minute, this thing can actually make you go off the rails to the point where you harm yourself or harm other people. But then there's this thing that's just going to make you eat Doritos and take a nap and you can go to prison for that. You know, it's just, it's so weird when you start to really zoom out and, 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 and look at that. And I'm not suggesting people eat Doritos because that would be horrible. <laughs> Lots of MSG. <laughs> but um, you get the point. You know what I mean? It's like, well, what happened? What were the side effects? I got really hungry and kind of fat and lazy. And, you know, I couldn't really do math well. It's like, wow, it's just crazy. Um, but anyway, I do, in the interest of time, there, there is like a big topic that I want to get into with you because it's just, I'm sitting back watching what's happening in terms of um, the availability of alternative points of view in our media and how, you know, mainstream media, I've kind of always known was full of shit, or at least when 9-11 happened, right. uh, that was my that was my red pill as I started to look at YouTube videos and things like that and go, well, wait a minute, there there was no plane at the Pentagon. <laughs> you know, it's like, there's not a plane there. And yet you watch the news and a plane crashed in the Pentagon. And then you look at, you know, some little weird YouTube video and go, oh yeah, there's no signs of a plane. Okay. And I'm, you know, don't want to get off on that tangent, but that was like the first thing where I was like, oh, wait, the TV doesn't tell the truth sometimes. Yeah. And so yeah. I think, you know, many of us are becoming dismiss. What is the word? Distrustful? Yes. Of mainstream media. Look at the Jeffrey Epstein thing. It's like, yeah. what? You know, I mean, these are things that quote unquote conspiracy theorists have been talking about for a long time. And now they're kind of becoming abundantly clear to even regular people that wouldn't even be interested in fringe information. So you have like mainstream media is being continually discredited because they're liars a lot of the time. But now it's it's bleeding into tech censorship, right? Where Google search results are being manipulated. And, um, and I personally think that even my own podcast was sort of shadow banned, um, mm-hmm. probably because... I had Del Bigtree on the show talking about yeah. vaccine safety, not anti-vax, not like we shouldn't have vaccines, but pro, let's find out if they're safe. And if they're not, let's maybe look for alternatives. Um, when I did that, a few months later, my show just kind of disappeared from the ratings yeah. and iTunes. And I was like, oh, that's that's weird. It must be in my head, you know? Um, so now, you know, here we are having people like you, um, you know, Mike Adams, the health ranger, who's quite conservative and does have a definite political point of view, but also has a lot of great alternative health information that he's putting out. Now, it's not just the mainstream media that's sort of diverting attention and suppressing alternative points of view, but now it's getting into big tech. And to me, big tech really is the media now, right? They're not private companies. This is the town square. This is where we all go for information. So... I've noticed as someone who's been Googling my way into alternative therapies and treatments and things like that for so many years now, um, I'll look for something now, like just say, oh, I don't know, um, say I Google dangers of vaccines or I Google, um, you know, alternative treatment for such and such. And the only results that come up on the first page are like kind of fake news discrediting those alternative treatments. And it's yeah. super, super weird. And just before we get on, got on our um, recording here, I, I wanted to see what was up with the Dell Big Tree because a lot of the censorship, especially on Facebook, has been around um, even just questioning the safety of vaccines. Yeah. They label you as some kook that wants polio to come back or something. And um, so I Googled Dell Big Tree and it was so weird because the first result was Luke Story's podcast. I was like, that guy's been around forever. And what was interesting, I was stoked to find that. And I thought maybe it's just because it's my computer. 
And then I asked a friend of mine to do it on his phone, and that was also the top result. But what I thought was really weird about that is that his film Vaxxed was nowhere to be found in like the first three pages, except for, you know, mainstream media, kind of liberal biased news articles discrediting the film. But his film and your ability to watch it actually didn't appear at all. Right. And right, so, right. you know, the, the way that this is bleeding into politics is one thing. It's kind of another conversation in a sense. But how now information around natural ways to take responsibility for your body and heal yourself, whether physically, spiritually, psychologically, that information is now being suppressed. And you have to wonder, well, you know, let's follow the money, right? Well, if big tech is now censoring information about healing yourself using natural means, who owns big tech? Who owns the media? And then you have to look up the pyramid, right? And you see, well, the same entities, the international banking cartels, et cetera, that own big pharma also own the media and also own tech. So it doesn't take a genius to figure out why this information is being suppressed. But I want to sound the alarm and just go like, hey, man, whether or not you believe in natural cures, whether you're a Democrat, Republican, whatever, this is super, super scary. We're getting into... Orwellian, totalitarian mind control of the public. Now they're meddling in elections. They're suppressing Tulsi Gabbard. She's suing Google for $50 million. And she's a liberal for all intents and purposes. So they start out with Alex Jones, who they can get everyone to hate, right? Because he's so fringe. Right. Um, Even though now he's being, you know, so many of his theories are being proven true now. But, you know, they take someone that down. Everyone kind of laughs. Oh, that weirdo, Sandy Hook, blah, 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 whatever. He doesn't have a right to free speech because his opinion's different than mine. But then that starts bleeding out of politics into the realm that you're in. So this is just like makes my head explode. And I feel like such a small voice and there's nothing I can do about it. And at the same time, sometimes I'm like, shit, maybe I can't do a show about vaccines or do a show with Kelly Brogan because my like my livelihood could be shut down if my podcast just disappears or iTunes deplatforms me or I get taken off Instagram or you can't Google me like, fuck, am I going to go have to get a a job as a waiter again? You know, it's like, absolutely. I mean, listen, I have the same internal. It's it's gnarly. So it's a bit, it's a bit of a tirade and not really a question, but I'd like to know kind of what your experience has been. Cause today I Googled you and your, your main website popped right up to the top page on Google, this evil, evil Google, which we can now verify, you know, look up Google project. Well, don't Google it. Web search project Veritas whistleblowers came out this week, like insiders that worked there for eight years saying how all the search results and algorithms are all gamed to suppress opposing points of view. Um, You know, he's talking more politically, but as we just or I just indicated um, it's also for health sites and stuff. But you seem to be in this in the clear now. What censorship have you experienced, and have you come back into the search results recently? Because I just found you so easily. Yeah. So if you search for my name, you'll you'll find me. It's not that bad. Okay. Um, but what happened is June third, a massively impactful algorithm was rolled out on on Google, and I only learned about it because my CTO. Texted me and he's like, we had 225,000 impressions for the past like year or so a month. And now we are literally at zero. What's happening? I don't know if this is like something with our, you know, our, our platform tech wise. And he was totally innocent. And um, my partner, Sayer, who has a very prominent natural health platform called greenmedinfo.com with like 2 million unique visitors a month was also impacted. And then we started to learn there were like, 
I don't know, 50 of us or so in the natural health space, including, you know, people like Wellness Mama and others who, you know, or healthy home economists who 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 don't actively speak, or Josh Axe, who don't speak about um, vaccines directly any longer, um, or if at, <laughs> yeah. if at all, you know, that they've said, right. you know, whatever, that they have also been impacted. And so what we learned is that it's really on on search, right? So so I used to be top page for gut brain, or if you were like weirdly looking for psychoneuroimmunology, like I was top page, and there were a couple of search results, which is how people look. People don't say, I don't want to take this effects, or what else can I do? KellyBroganMD.com, right? They say, you know, safe alternative to antidepressant. That's how we look. And what has happened because of this algorithm, and you mentioned the whistleblower, there's even been another one who's come out to speak about the way in which Google is characterizing certain searches as what they're calling fringe queries. And they feel, and listen, again, you could have all sorts of um, suspicions as to the motivation, right? We'll never know for sure. I mean, we know what the whistleblowers are observing. And I do think that that the people who are pulling the strings, who are always going to be men behind the scenes, right? I love that they put like a woman out front as the talking head, but let's be real. <laughs> let's be real. That they, they really do feel this is necessary. I have to believe that because otherwise right. I don't want to live in a world where that's not true. Right. But they really do feel this is necessary. And it is the most extreme outcropping of a program of control, right? A belief system that says we must apply more control when we feel out of control, right? You and I are interested in a different belief system that says when I feel out of control, how can I look into shifting? Right? How can I look into growing? How can I look into transforming? That's a different model, right? But this model that is in its death throes, I believe, is predicated on this idea that when things feel unsafe, more control, force, and dominance is needed, right? That's, what, that's the same right. thing that says, you know, when one antidepressant doesn't work, an antipsychotic and a mood stabilizer is needed. More of the same. Not like, should I question using an antidepressant at all? Right. So through this lens, we have higher ups at this private corporation that have a strong feeling that they need to control the narrative. Right. And and so what they think is right, if you watch that whistleblower video, it's so amazing because it's almost like she, you know, it, it's almost like the, the administration at Google, they really feel like, wait a minute, not everyone agrees with us. Well, the people who don't agree, they're <laughs> yeah. bad people, right? Yeah. They're bad people that we're trying yeah. to protect you from. Right. So it's, it's right. like they, they almost naively imagine that there, there is just a human narrative, right? Like right. a human rights narrative. And of course, whenever there is, polarity or, or debate, we know already that there are many intelligent narratives at play. Always, that's always going to be the case where there is debate, right? And so whenever these controversial issues come up, whether it's natural health or vaccination, GMOs, you know, natural birth, whatever it might be, if there is debate, then that inquiry should be 
permitted. Because if it isn't, if the science is quote unquote settled, then of course we're living in a technocracy, we're living in a totalitarian environment. And that's why so many people are are looking at you know, Handmaid's Tale and 1984 and Huxley and you know, all of these um, visionaries who really foretold this patterning because we've been here before and we'll keep coming up against it unless until and if we are able to respond differently. So that's, you know, that's what I'm interested in is how are we going to respond differently to this, right? Again, if we can all see Google for what it is, which is, okay, here's how I explained it to my my 10 year old daughter. I said, here's what's up with mama's career. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, if I'm working at Starbucks, don't be surprised. No. So it's as if you thought you were going to the library and you were going to search around the library for the books you wanted to read. But instead, what's happening is the librarian has put only her favorite books on the shelf and she didn't tell you. And wow. now it's if you're going to the library and you only get to read the librarian's favorite books, but you think you're going to the regular library. If you know that you're going to the librarian's personal bookshelf, maybe you don't want to go to the library, right? Maybe you're going to actually feel inspired to create your own library that carries more books and different books and books that say all sorts of different stuff, right? So I think that's where we're at. We just have to recognize Google for what it is. And we are well indoctrinated and and tethered, you know, to to the habit of outsourcing our inquiry, you know, to this corporation. And it's also a really fertile time for something new to emerge. And it's never quite been at this level. Like it's like we need the push, we need the squeeze, or or else the the creative impulse is not going to arise and and trust me a lot of a lot of us are discussing what's next in a way that we weren't 2 years ago yeah and, well, and we're yeah yeah well it's one of those things that's like you know you watch someone that's maybe a bit fringe like taking alex jones like i was i was buying alex jones dvds 20 years ago like this guy was against the bushes he that, was yeah. he was i would consider him like actually a true liberal personally um, but you know, like him or At not, least a libertarian, right? Yeah. yeah, but like like him, maybe not liberal. That's a stretch. But in his in his early days, I mean, he was like all he did was attack the Bushes and the whole Clinton and Bush dynasty and all of that, right? Oh. And brought out some really great information. But you take someone like that, and so those of us that are maybe a little more middle of the road and don't have such extreme views, um, watch someone like that get taken down, and it's like, well, yeah, that's him. It'll never happen to me, and that's. When that happened, I was like, uh-uh, this is the tipping point. This is just a yeah. test by the system. Again, perhaps well-meaning people that are in this insular bubble at Google and uh, you know the, the heads of these media organizations that think, we know what's best for those dummies in the Midwest that exactly. voted this way or that way. And exactly. we're just going to control the information because we're the arbiters of man's destiny. They're that fucking yeah. arrogant, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well-meaning, exactly. but that arrogant. And so they take someone like that out. And then next thing you know... There's a Tulsi Gabbard who's being silenced, who's, you know, just not the establishment pick that they want, but is a Democrat, is is a little bit anti-establishment, but is still liberal, right? And then yeah. you're like, oh, well, if they got to her, oh, shit, that's when it starts getting scary. And that's when people start waking up. So my platform is not about like, don't vaccinate or vaccines are bad. I, it's just like, hey, I'd like to explore another point of view where I'm not telling you, hey, if you're on psych meds, get off them and jump off a bridge. No, please, like, 
be careful. I'm just saying there are alternatives, right? But let's say someone like me now is targeted because my views are too radical. That's why I want someone like you on the show. And I'm like, hey, you guys, we need to sound the alarm here because we could be at a tipping point where everyone just gets silenced and there's no alternative voices anymore. And you have this monolithic sort of thought that we're all expected to follow. And if you step out of line, you get punished and you get your Chase account taken away, your PayPal account taken away, which sounds crazy, but that's what's happening to people on the far right and things at the moment. I mean, it's it's terrifying. It is happening in China already. Yeah, I mean, you know, this is the system that, you know, the social credit score and all of this stuff that sounds like a conspiracy theory until you find out, oh, no, that's actually how communist China is. And that they've killed a hundred you know million of their own people in this century. I mean, it's like that system is still operative. It's not like, oh, I remember back during the Cold War and you had the communists in, you know, in the Soviet Union. It's like, oh no, that's like still a full-on thing. <laughs> and it's coming here to the land of the free, you know, so to speak, as we as we hope it would be and think it would be. So, you know, what I like to encourage people is like, regardless of whether or not you agree with someone who's a bit more fringe that the issue of free speech is an issue of everyone. And it's starting to bleed into the realms of everyone now, not just the people that are fringe or right wing or something like that, or people that are extremely, you know, anti-vax or anti-pharma or whatever it is. It's like, no, like regular people are starting to be silenced now just because they have a point of view that's a little bit different. And it's just, it's so important. I think that people understand this. And as you said, the, the impetus to, look at alternative platforms. And when Twitter, I think, was the first one that really jumped the shark and just started, you know, they started shadow banning people and they banned Alex Jones and they just went off the rails with like such obvious censorship that people, you know, there's like this thing, Gab, I don't know if that ever kind of landed, but people are like, fuck it, let's make a new Twitter, fuck Twitter. Because it's not an open dialogue anymore. It's an echo chamber of same thought where we're right, they're wrong, and we hate the people that hate. And so we're just going to have our own conversation here and no one else is allowed at the table. But meanwhile, like Twitter is really the public square. So I think you're right that it's a healthy time, but only if we wake up and somebody makes a new Google, makes a new Twitter, makes a new Facebook and is like, no, we're going to say no to this. Or what's also kind of encouraging, I don't know if it'll come to fruition because there's so much sort of resistance um, to this administration right now. But now, I think due to the fact that so many people on the right have been censored, that's getting the attention of our current administration where executive orders might actually be put in place because yeah. these companies like Google and Facebook, they are literally breaking the law. There's antitrust laws yeah. that are being broken. Right. They're, they are conspiring with one another to control the public narrative and ultimately control our democratic process and overthrow our electoral uh, process completely. I mean, like, elec- like real, like real election meddling, you know, like yeah. Yeah. To, to just silence all information other than, you know, the agenda that they foresee as the best for mankind. And their, as I said, in their arrogant point of view of being all knowing and discounting anyone in the Midwest or wherever that might have a different point of view. And so it's just, I don't know, we're in such a crazy time. I've been watching this kind of ramp up and I'm just like, ah, there's not many people that I can talk to about it, especially publicly, because where I live, people are highly indoctrinated into this sort of system. And other than my close friends, no one really would know what I was talking about. Or they're like, that's a conspiracy theory. I'm like, try and Google something. <laughs> you know? I mean, what's so interesting about the the transparency, it's like the lid is off, right? The, the, the light side of technology is that it is showing, you can hide nothing. I mean, I assume all of my 
emails are read, all of my phone calls are listened to, all of my texts are observed, right? That's my default assumption. Right. Actually, to be honest, like all of the ethical considerations aside is very liberating, right? Because there is a, a transparency in this time. I mean, all of the Me Too movement and all of the exposés um, from, you know, again, the Epstein files to WikiLeaks, you know, you name it. There is something happening that is, I think, telling us all, you're never gonna be able to get away with it, right? Like, so I, I really do believe in that. And something that's so interesting about Google's auto search, um, like complete, right? So if you put in anti-vaxxers are, you'll find it, it populates um, as an autocomplete killers. Wow. But then, then if you go to Google Trends, so the same, you know, this is so confusing to me. Like, why wouldn't they obscure this, right? But if you go to Google Trends, you will find that is not a search term phrase. No one, oh. no one, no one is typing in anti First of all, no one types in statements. They right. type in inquiry, right? That's the whole point. <laughs> right. So, but no right. one is typing that in. If you believe that, probably you don't need to check it out or look at it or want to read page search results. Uh, affirming it. So you can look for yourself at the discrepancies between what is auto completed for you. Like, for example, you can put in men can, and it'll say, like, have babies be pregnant breastfeed. <laughs> Perhaps that's true. I don't know. Oh, but I God. On Google Trends, actually, a spoiler alert, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> no one's looking for that. Right, so this right. is one of the ways that they manipulate and can manipulate and they know that they can and influence those who are in ambivalent places, which is many of us who are going to search, right? That's the nature of inquiry as we are we are looking to um, discover. And of course, now perhaps we're looking at the fact that you can't outsource that, right? If you think that Google, daddy Google is gonna tell you the truth, you you might want to know that you're going to be led down daddy's preferential trail. And it's not going to lead you to some objective land of, of facts. And it's, it's really fascinating that you can look at that discrepancy because it didn't have to be that way, right? They could have taken trends down or you know made it so that you couldn't confirm that their algorithm is is intentionally misleading you. So that's why this it cannot be the realm of conspiracy because through the, the data provided by the very, you know, it's like the package insert on the pharmaceutical, the, the very seeming purveyor of harm is also telling you they're doing that. It's a weird right. time we're in, right. right? Yeah. We'll be right back at you after this brief but important announcement. Yo, I am super pumped to share with you beekeepersnaturals.com. Now, if you heard episode 175 with founder and CEO Carly Stein, you know exactly what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about are the highest quality bee products in the world from Beekeepers Naturals. Now, I've been using bee products for a long time. Back in the 90s, I was rocking like the bee pollen and and, you know, using kind of gourmet honey over the years and things like that. But until that interview, honestly, I had no idea of the superpowers and the variety of different bee products. So not only do these guys make the cleanest, most organic, most potent bee products, they also have the widest variety of products. So whether it's propolis, which helps you with the immune system, 
um, soothing scratchy throats. It's really potent stuff. Or the bee pollen, which is a superfood with vitamins and nutrients and gives you energy. It has amino acids and protein, whether it's the raw honey, the royal jelly. Uh, they even have a tonic for your brain. I mean, they have a lot of great products over there. So if you're not hip to the power of bee products as a superfood, I want to highly recommend that you get over to beekeepersnaturals.com. And honestly, if you want to just learn all about bees in the industry and how it's done and how it's done right for ecology and for the environment, definitely go back and listen to episode 175. It's a, it's a great episode and the founder Carly is just brilliant and she's running a really great operation over there. So I'm very happy to support them on the show. And uh, like all the stuff I always talk about, I use them every day. In fact, I use it too much because I run out of it. Like when I interviewed her, I was like, so I do like a couple tablespoons of the bee powered, which is the really potent one that combines all of the superfoods in the hive into one product. She's like, dude, the dose for that is half a teaspoon once a day. You're tripping. But, you know, I'm hardcore because uh, it just tastes delicious and it gives you like instant energy. So definitely get over to beekeepersnaturals.com. When you're there, if you enter the code lifestylist, that's one word, lifestylist, you'll save 15% off your order. So go to beekeepersnaturals.com, enter the code lifestylist. And now back to the interview. Do you think that the genie's out of the bottle to the point of public awareness of things that we're discussing now where there's there's no turning back and the stranglehold that the purveyors of information such as tech media and big media that that that's there's no way that they'll be able to retain control because there's just too many people there's a critical mass of people that are at least awake to the fundamental facts that you just discussed i mean you can you can autocomplete like Clinton body count and it won't come up as a search, even though so many people are curious about that particular hashtag or meme, right? It's like, I, I don't know. I mean, there have been 150 people or so that kind of like wronged them and now are dead because they committed suicide by shooting themselves in the back four times. Um, right. But that information, that information is not readily available. You'll find something else, right? So there's, you know, now it's not just like guys like me, I've been like into conspiracies forever because so many of them are true. There's so many things that are unexplained from Kennedy to chemtrails to 9-11. Like I just find information like that fascinating when there's something that's obviously been suppressed or you've been lied to. To me, it's like, well, I don't know what the real story is, but I know that I'm being lied to. And that that piques my curiosity to get to the truth of what is actually happening, which of course, someone with my my viewpoint would never really be able to know because it's inside information, right? I don't know what happened in 9-11, but it's definitely not what they said on CNN. There's too many discrepancies. That's what I always tell my friends, my because whenever they ask me about some, I really don't follow the news at all just for mental hygiene. Yeah. But whenever somebody says, you know, what happened with this? What about this shooting? What about this? All I ever say is, let me just tell you, it's it's not what you are reading. <laughs> right, right. That's all I know is that it's not that. Right, right. Well, that's the thing. Other that's the thing. We don't know. Like if you look at the topic of geoengineering, you know, around 1996, I was lived in LA and I'd lived here since 89. And all of a sudden I started looking up in the sky, seeing these like really crazy tic-tac-toe clouds everywhere. And I'm like, oh, that's new. Weird. Wonder what that is. You know, and then I started doing some research and finding out. And any information I found back then was like super fringe. They're, you know, trying to poison the populace and make you 
um, docile and it's these chemicals that give you brain cancer, whatever, like the extremes of the conspiracy. And then now you have even mainstream media going, oh, we're exploring the idea of geoengineering to reflect the sun's heat and radiation back out into space. And we're thinking about doing this. And you're like, dude, you've been doing that since 96. Like, it's not a new thing. It's just that they have to crawl these things forward incrementally um, because they have to kind of indoctrinate people or get people used to it. And, you know, by the time the conversation becomes widespread and serious, it's like it's already in effect. It's already going. And so I guess back to my my question, because I get so amped up about this stuff. But to me, it seems we've hit this point of critical mass where there's no putting the genie back in the bottle. There's too many people that are just, you know, rational, regular people that aren't conspiracy theorists, that aren't into crazy theories and fringe information that if they just have like a relatively average IQ can look at the facts of the suppression of information and the, and the mass mind control that's going on and start to question that to the point where they distrust a Google or, you know, any of the news organizations and they start to look for alternative information. In other words, do you think we can all be put back to sleep at this point or is it too late for, you know, the, the, the deception to, to stick? I have to believe that there is a quorum, you know, like there is a critical amount. And actually it's, it's probably, I think, you know, Greg Braden or somebody once quoted, I think it's like 7% or something is the tipping point, right? So it's not what you imagine that, that, you know, your aunt, your mother-in-law and the neighbor down the street have to all agree with you in order for a change to happen. And I also know, and, and obviously why I, I wrote Own Yourself and, and am very um, focused right now on personal sovereignty is because I think that there are two paradoxical ingredients to this transformation opportunity that we are being presented with. And the first is that we have to come together in community, right? So we have to be having the conversation. I need you to be brave enough to talk to me, right? And, right. and, and we have to understand that there is power in our numbers, right? That if we can come together with like minds who are interested in inquiry, who are interested in conversation, you treat your listeners as adults. That's the difference between you and Google, right, who treats, right, right. treats their searchers as children who need to be fed only certain amounts of information that they determine is right. You say, right. you're an adult, I'm gonna trust you to, to do with this information what's best for you, right? I'm gonna give you that that authority over yourself. I'm going to let you have that, right? And so can we come together with like minds and support each other? Because otherwise, you know, it may be very difficult to have any penetrance of any given perspective or conversation if we don't understand that we need to do this, right? And so many of us are feeling the necessity of, of community. I mean, for myself in my personal life, coming to Miami and finding a, a real live, you know, pulsing community of like-minded people has been the most healing experience I've had in my lifetime. And it helps me to be stronger in my personal work, right? So that's the paradox. It's like, we need to do it together, but then there's also an inside job that must be engaged each to his or her own, right? So, so there is that personal journey into the, the realms of your own darkness, right? And really coming into compassionate self-acceptance around that 
um, that we each can only do by ourselves. However you are going, whatever kind of journey you're gonna go on, right? Whether it's gonna be through the archetypal path of so many of my patients and those that I support, which is first things first, you know, let's make sure the body is on, you know, a solid um, foundation. Then you can do some spiritual psychological work and begin to look at all of the other places you've been dispensing your energy or whether it's a totally different archetype, whether you work with an energy healer and three sessions later have some great awakening or you're walking down the street and you just you know, lose your ego entirely and never pick it up again. Who knows, but I do know that, that if we don't each do that work, especially in the activism realm, it's never more important. We're going to continue to perpetuate this idea that there is a bad other outside. Right, right. Right, when that's really our bad other internally that we are projecting on the outside, right? So especially in the vaccine realm, wow, it is a a dark place in, in, in the, you know, the vaccine um, pro-choice advocacy conversations. Why? Because we come to this because we we hate authority, because we perceive that we've been hurt. Right. All of us have childhood wounds, right? We don't come to activism because we're good people who want to save the planet. I wish that was the case. Unfortunately, it's not. We come to activism because we have a particular wound that has made it so that the idea of being controlled by another, and especially a medical system that has the capacity to penetrate our bodies against our will is is intolerable, right? That makes an activist, right? So that wow. is why we speak out. Not because we're so courageous. So many people right. tell me, oh, Kelly, you're so courageous. You're so it's not the case. It right. it is is I have no choice but to 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 do what I can to create a reality where I am not penetrated against my will and nor are my children. Right, and by the way, we're talking about vaccines, but let me tell you, having worked on 13 locked units in Bellevue in New York City, this goes on every single day in psychiatric wards where people are medicated by injection against their will with a kangaroo court that says, you know, you no longer have your civil liberties to decline and refuse and you will be treated against your will. This happens every day. Right. This is not wow. like in some creepy, you know, mini series on Hulu or some weird <laughs> sci-fi documentary. Right. This is happening right now. Okay. So one foot so, over the cuckoo's nest is, is, exactly, is a reality. You can absolutely wow. it happens every day that you can be electroshocked wow. against your will. Do you know that? Right. No, I had no idea. That's going on. It's going on all the time, every day. And again, these aren't like creepy, malevolent, you know beings torturing people for kicks. These it's a part of a system that says you need this. We need to help you in this way and you just don't know it. Right? So it's a part of the 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 moralistic lens that says we know better than you. But we give tacit permission to these systems every day, all of us, when we say that there is badness out there that needs to be controlled. So my spiritual work as an activist and as somebody very interested in making change has had to include trying to understand what it is to be someone who thinks that we should not have medical choice, to be a legislator or a lobbyist. Um, or a physician, right? What is it like to be that person? I was somewhat near that not so long ago, 
right? So for me, it's not that much of a leap um, to understand what it is to think that this is necessary, right, or irresistibly, you know, alluring as um, a focus of energy. If we don't do that work, then we will continue to see germs, terrorists, you know, bad guys. We will continue to see this this evil outside. And what I find so exciting is that this conversation is happening all over the place where we're beginning to recognize that if we don't own our shit, we're never going to escape this cycle, right, of control. We're not going to escape it. It's going to come up again, whether it's slavery or World War II, Holocaust, you know, whatever it is, or this current setting of the stage for something pretty grim, right? I think all of us, and that's why you're you're saying, well, maybe it could be the loss of my livelihood, but it could be worse, right? It could be weirder or way darker. We yeah. all have that sense that we're on the precipice of something that's really freaky, never before seen in our lifetimes, right? A certain kind of totalitarian energy is being rolled out. So can we respond to it with a level of heart, right? Yeah, I love the yeah. etymology of courage, right? A level of, of that kind of equanimity, calm, presence, and a good degree of compassion so that we change it for good, we transform it for good, and we usher in like an up leveling of this planet that wouldn't otherwise be available, right? Because I don't think that we can imagine what's coming. I think if we if we do, it's from the consciousness that's already quite limited, right? That's got us right. into this situation. So can we make room for it being something we never thought possible, right? Like my friend Charles Eisenstein calls it the more beautiful world our hearts know is possible. I love that, right? So like, can it be that there is something we know we're entitled to? And the way to that is surprisingly in a certain amount of personal responsibility and a, a way of um, dedicating ourselves to self-discovery that involves curiosity as the first reflex. Right. right. So so I think we used to think that owning our shit meant like being really control and having everything together and looking good and checking all the boxes. That doesn't work. We've tried that. I've tried that. Trust me, it doesn't work. Wherever you go, there you are. And you can set up your beautiful life in Miami with everything exactly how you want it to be <laughs> and still realize that you're totally fucked up inside, right? Yeah. And so we are now understanding, as as you know very well, that getting your shit together actually involves intimacy with all of those places you were running from, the pain, the rage, the trauma, the shameful stuff, that is the hardest work. Like what is something you wish that no one on the planet would ever know about you because you imagine that they would never love you because of it? Can you develop intimacy with that part of you, right? And really own it because I think if we all know, right? Like if you had two people in front of you, one who's like pretending they have their shit together and they look really in control versus somebody who just owns the fact that they don't, you'd rather be with that person. We're starting to see that's why we prize authenticity now in a way that we never did before, right? Because we feel viscerally the necessity of that level of personal integrity. It's so much more relevant now than it was even five years ago for the collective, let alone for the individual. And so 
in order to walk that path, we need support from others. However, it's a it's a personal, it's an inside job, right? Like it's it's yeah. a personal step by step that each of us have to do. And I think if you're meant to do this work in this lifetime, you kind of feel that stirring inside. You kind of feel like, hmm, what I've been doing for a couple of decades is just not working. It's just not working anymore. So I'm ready to try something different. And that is what I, you know, what I'm calling self-ownership. That is um, the kind of it's a kind of saying no. It's a kind of rebellion, like maybe a quiet rebellion that says, my doctor doesn't know better, right? Google doesn't know better. You know, my president doesn't know better. The FDA, they don't know better. You know, only I can know. I and I already know. I think for me, that's maybe the difference between my first book, A Mind of Your Own, and this one. It's like with my first book, I was like, oh my God, I have all this information. Everybody needs it because if they don't have it, horrible things are gonna happen to them and, and they need it now, right? And I thought, okay, this is I need to save people. Right. So it's like that narcissistic element within me that's oh well, I need to I need to help people in this way. And now, several years later, seeing what has been possible through very basic information and a very, very basic ritual of self-care that I encourage, I now understand I never I never saved anyone. I never even changed anyone's mind. I never even maybe informed anyone because all I really did was validate what they already knew. And I really believe that because otherwise there's no way to explain the kinds of outcomes that we've witnessed, whether it's like resolution of 18 years of lupus or, you know, reclamation from multiple psychiatric meds and diagnoses. I didn't do that (laughs) and and neither did the protocol, right? So what did that was a, um, a reflection from outside that what you felt was real. And I think that's what we can do for each other, right? Like, so we can create a space where our inner sense of truth, and it's going to be unique for each of us, but where that is permitted, allowed, supported, and validated so that we can begin the process of walking towards ourselves, you know? There's some, I was, I was sitting there going, oh man, I, I wish I had a pen and a paper. Usually I have, you know, I can take notes and I don't want to interrupt, but there's so many touch points I want to go off on. But that, that was fucking brilliant. And that, that right there could just be a soundbite that is the podcast almost. I mean, that's, that's what I think is the most transformative about your approach. And it's like the concept that you can't fight darkness. You have to just yes. make the light brighter. And yes. I think myself too, like you mentioned in your first book and kind of when you start to uncover this, you're like, oh, we need to fight the man and like they're wrong, we're right. And you get caught up in the duality, which is just another side of shadow and another, it's like flip side of ego. Now I'm more righteous than the people that yes. think they're righteous, right? Yes, exactly. And, there's, and there's, there's not a lot of productivity or progress that can be made there other than you feeling like, wow, I'm woke now and I'm going to tell everyone about it. Um, but I really like the approach and this definitely goes into activism and why I think I'm often invited to back causes that are kind of more in the activism space um, versus kind of um, just, I don't know, I think what I do is not activism. It's just sharing information and my own experience. It's just my journey. And I'm I'm bringing along some other people that are interested in taking the journey with me. That's kind of how I look at the work that I do. But I often um, am kind of turned off by 
different types of activism because it's like, I get the sense, man, you need to get your own shit together before you go out <laughs> and try to save the world. It's and, true. And I think that that's kind of what I'm doing is I'm, you know, I'm saying, wow, okay, so yeah, I quit smoking cigarettes and I don't, you know, I really have solved the anger issue for the most part. I don't tend to get really angry anymore. And there's, you know, a lot of compulsive and addictive behaviors that have been solved and I've made so much progress. But as you make progress, there's there's still things that get illuminated along the way. And, you know, something I've been looking at recently, um, which I'm very open and transparent about is I really have an obsession with all of my health practices and stuff, you know? And yes, it's like, yes. I, I don't find fault with it. I'm not critical of myself, but I do have hopefully a neutral awareness that's like, huh, yeah, I'm, and, you know, some of my friends and people close to me point it out to me sometimes and I have an open enough mind to go, all right, let me look at that and go, yeah, shit, that's true. So, I don't have to go out and try and save the world, man. There's still so much work just to do on myself. And, you know, when the, the the level of the ocean, you know, rises, it raises all ships, right? I don't have to go out and try and raise everyone else's ships. Just worry about no. just my contribution to the level in general, which in this case would be like the level of consciousness, right? So I'm doing everything I can to raise my level of consciousness. And then some of those elements of shadow or ego kind of just fall away without even really having to fight them just because I'm making the light brighter and I'm bringing more truth and more love and illumination and authenticity, as you mentioned, into my life. And then people tend to gravitate to that field that are also interested in being uplifted. And that in and of itself is the activism. So I don't, you know, my path is not to run down the street with a sign saying, fuck those guys, you know, hate the people that hate or whatever. Exactly. You know? well, it's like, it it's just not my, it's not my path. My path is like, let me share information and love and positive energy and just amplify that. And that tends to drown out some of the negativity. And, um, and I, I want to go. Yeah. You're alluding to like, I think a very important, you know, layer of, of personal growth, which is tapping into what your particular balance, you know, if you want to call it feminine and masculine, or there's a, yin yang, there's a million, you know, sort of polarities that could be um, ascribed to it. But understanding for you where discipline, because I agree, self-care, I think is the most powerful form of activism today. I've said that lots of times. I stand by that, literally. Until you have that in check, don't go out there thinking you're going to help anyone. So that what does that self-care look like? Obviously, I have you know my own personal definition where it, it has to do with raising consciousness around contemplative practice and you know a, a commitment to going inward, using the technology of breath, et cetera, um, nutrition, and then you know developing a relationship to the grief-inducing reality of what we are doing to this planet through a detox practice because that's really what a de- why would a detox practice be necessary if we weren't ravaging, you know, the, this planet. So, you know, those are kind of the general pillars, but where does that discipline, so where do the straight lines limit the fluidity, right? So it's it's in that balance between, you know, the the discipline around a commitment and choice and also this kind of self-forgiveness, self-compassion and a softness with ourselves that both are necessary, right? Because I have that tendency too. Like I um, have an early morning meditation practice, and I've never missed a day for I don't know four something years. And there are many days where I'm like, God, would I still love myself if I slept in tomorrow? <laughs> right? And odds are that 
to to explore that terrain would probably at this point because I have exercised the discipline, shown myself that I I can turn towards myself in that way. Odds are that that'd be more growth oriented for me than sticking with the practice, right? So when we judge ourselves, right, or we have to stay within this dogmatic space in order to continue to feel self-love, sometimes it can be very important to explore that it's conditional, right? Because we, we want to get to a place where we say, no matter how I show up, a liar, a cheater, a manipulator, a shitbag, a loser, incompetent, whatever, no matter how I show up, I am staying with myself. I will not abandon myself, right? That is how we have any potential to, first of all, receive love ever, which I think most of us acknowledge is extremely difficult, or to generate that level of consciousness that we want to live, you know, on a on a planet that 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 supports and and incubates that unconditional love. And it's not, you know, I'm the first, the consummate skeptic, right? So I'm the first one who's going to roll her eyes around the idea of like one love and how we're all here to just love ourselves and each other. And you know, when you get into the the deep dark depths of all of the places you never even wanted to look at, let alone hold in yourself. And I am sort of like, I think a, a bit of an unusual case because I was so unaware of my fearfulness, of my laziness, of my incompetence, of my own stupidity or ignorance, right? I was, I so cur- have curated as an adult the aspects of myself that I find lovable, that I thought of myself as a pretty self confident person, really, almost uniquely so. And the truth is that it was just so buried in the catacombs, all of those aspects of my vulnerability, so buried that I literally wasn't aware they were there. Right. So I've only recently begun to explore my own fears because I like literally didn't know I had any. But many <laughs> right. of my patients are on the other side of the spectrum where they're self-critical, um, you know, sort of weakness focus, focus lens of themselves is so at the fore that their relationship to their good object is far more suppressed, right? So the truth is that we all have all of it. We all have all of it. And adult psychology is such that we can understand I have a mix of good and bad. And so does the person I'm relating to or the system even I'm relating to has a mix of good and bad. And in in another given circumstance, I might make the exact same choice that they're making because we all have that mix of good and bad that's gonna be drawn in different ways, right? And it's simply the awareness um, that I'm never totally right and you're never totally wrong. The awareness that there is a degree of all of it in in all of it, um, that really is the signature of an adult consciousness. But the problem is that most of us are running around as adults uh, with child level consciousness, where we are seeing things as all good or all bad. Um, and we are waiting for, you know, mommy or daddy to, to finally love us. And that's literally what I think <laughs> wow. uh, most people wow. on psych meds. I right. mean, it's really that basic. And, wow. and that's my hope is that I can create um, some contribution to a conversation around the nuances of the sensitivities that are 
are embodied by those who end up on psychiatric meds to, to begin to orient them towards those sensitivities as the, the seat of their power. There's something you touched on um, in there at some point and you used the word um, vulnerability, you know, and, and that the aspect of having that powerful introspection and being vulnerable with yourself and allowing yourself to kind of look into some of those shadows and see the unseen and bring those to light. And I think there's something really healthy going on right now with um, the proliferation of independent media like this podcast and so many YouTube channels and things like that, where uh, people like you and I have the opportunity to explore in long form content with no censorship and no yes. no other agendas imposing on us whatsoever to be able to share these experiences. And I know for me, I've been able to not only within myself, but with friends, family, loved ones and the public at large be able to be so much more real and authentic and vulnerable mm -hmm. because I'm given permission to do so by watching other people do it. Right. I mean, when I first exactly. started this podcast, there were things that I would like never talk about from my childhood. It was I would just say like, oh yeah, I had a rough childhood. I would never talk about the details of it um, because I didn't feel safe to do so. And then I would hear someone else, you know, a Mastin Kip or whomever talk about trauma. And I was like, oh, shit, you can like talk about this now? And it, it, you know, it became safe. And then yes. now I find that I'm able, thankfully, and I'm so grateful for this to be able to bring some of these issues to light and do some of the inner work and actually take people along for the journey. And I get so many messages from people that are like, oh my God, I, you know, I never could talk about my addiction issues or this issue or this trauma or the, you know, self-doubt and imposter syndrome and all of the things that we're so freely talking about now because we're no longer limited to a quick soundbite on, you know, going on a talk, like you could go on a talk show to, on a press junket for your new book, right? And they're like, so um, Dr. Brogan, tell us about your theory on da-da-da. And you have 30 seconds to kind of spill it out. You can't sit there for two hours and like yeah. have a deep dive into some, you know, into some more rich material and have the opportunity and the platform and the safety to really be vulnerable and honest about your human experience. So it's interesting that at the same time, while, there's so much like obvious suppression as we covered earlier. There's also this kind of awakening now in the collective and individually yes. because of our ability to share information so readily without anyone. I mean, you know, aside from the censorship we discussed, obviously, but without anyone, I have a podcast. I can kind of do whatever I want for the time being. And we can talk about this thing, these things. And I guarantee you there's people listening that are going to relate to something that you and I have said, and they're going to, stop their podcast app at the end of it and go, huh, shit, maybe I should take a look at this aspect of my life and that's going to be brought to light and they're going to find that courage to be vulnerable and open with themselves and look in those places that are perhaps scary and uncomfortable to look at. So it's a really, it's a really exciting time and I'm so grateful to be kind of involved in the kind of work that I do. So it's no longer just a solo mission where I'm trying to figure it out myself, but I can share the journey with people and then I find that, you know, everyone I talk to now is doing some kind of crazy alternative therapy or plant medicines or whatever it is. And I'm like, God, this is crazy the way that this information spreads so quickly and people are really starting to become uh, willing to do the deep work and to be open and vulnerable. And now it's almost cooler to admit you don't have your shit together. Exactly. Then it is like you said, you know, who do you want to hang out with? The person who's kind of like putting on the poker face and, you know keeping their stoic sort of, I've got my shit together persona or someone saying, yeah, like I fall apart all the time. <laughs> I'm human. And I'm working on it. Yeah, yeah. I'm learning something about myself. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that 
you know, at the risk of getting like overly mystical about it, I think that the imperative to be honest with ourselves. So it's like you said, all of the things that maybe you feel more comfortable sharing and owning, right? Because it's not that we are supposed to go like trotting out our dirty laundry and wailing about our victimization. That is not what I am encouraging, right? There is a different kind of energy that comes from a place of self-acceptance and self-compassion that right. really allows it to be okay that we struggle. It, 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 it generates a culture of struggle as being a part of growth, right? So what are you doing with this awareness? How are you picking up the lost pieces of yourself, right? So, so the more honest we are with ourselves, the more we may live in a world that values that honesty. Right, and the less tenable, perhaps, um, something like top-down censorship will become. But we have to each do that work ourselves in order to live in a world that reflects that as a priority. You know what I mean? Right, right. Yeah, we have to stop self-censoring. You know, in a sense, exactly. in, the, in the micro, in order for exactly. that to reflect on it's the macro. Yeah, yeah that's that's very cool. Uh, I do I do have to ask you because uh, I could go on on this particular thread for uh, indefinitely, frankly. I, I do want to ask you, though, because I did a show on vaccine safety, not anti-vax vaccine safety, just to clarify, a while ago. Yeah. Um, and I was very convinced that vaccines are, in fact, not safe. Uh, mm-hmm. And since then, having had personal friends whose kids have just gone completely off the rails with autism, mm-hmm. like right at the day after getting vaccinated, um, and so many people have written in to the show and on social media saying, oh, my God, my kid has just completely been devastated after getting these vaccines and whatnot. So I'm I'm like definitely coming from the standpoint that um, they don't appear to be safe. <laughs> um, and also, <laughs> I recently I, I, I sent you this in a message, but I recently uh, saw a post by um, by uh, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., mm-hmm. And he posted these scientific stats that are kind of a graph, a timeline. Maybe I can put these in the show notes for people listening. Uh, You can get these sent to you in a newsletter at lukestory.com forward slash newsletter, by the way, where we send out all the show notes from every episode. But it's looking at measles, for example, and you see this, you know, percentage um, of uh, deaths per 100,000. And it's, you know, you're going back in 1900 and we're like, 12 deaths per 100,000, et cetera. There's a spike around 1916. And then it steadily declines. It just ramps down and ramps down to the point where it's basically non-existent by 1960, 1956, 1960. It's just kind of like measles is gone. And then the vaccine's introduced in 1963. And then it's already flatlined though before the vaccine came out. You know what I'm saying? And so it's like, oh, well, that's because refrigeration and sanitation became accessible right so when you when you look at and this and these graphs are true of all the all the different things whooping yeah. cough measles scarlet fever typhoid polio all of them were in a steady decline as just basically refrigeration became widely available and sanitation washing your hands you know properly working toilets became the norm then all of these infectious diseases disappeared then vaccines were introduced after they had already flatlined. I mean, it's just like a basic fundamental, you can just look at the graph and go, oh, okay, so the vaccines really didn't have an impact. And then there, of course, are another set of graphs, which are indicators of, 
you know, the, I don't know how many, you know, kids in a hundred develop autism now, et cetera, but there's all sorts of other issues that we didn't used to have, some of which could be just contributed to general toxicity, lifestyle choices that we have now, and just the domestication of the human species um, as it leads to degenerative um, and infectious diseases and all this. But it's like, it seems like the diseases were already on the down uh, slope, then vaccines came, then all of these other issues came up and are rising and rising the more vaccines were given. So it's just, I don't really know a lot about the science. I just kind of look at the very basic, fundamental, zoomed out perspective. And it seems like, huh, are these really necessary in the amounts that we give them? And are there negative side effects and consequences of you know, giving so many to kids. I know when I was a kid, I had a few, you know, and the generation before me had their that little spot on their arm that was from like the smallpox one or whatever it was. And then you stop getting that one. And, you know, I don't know how many I had as a kid, but definitely probably way fewer than a kid would have now. So it's just like, I think it's really scary that we're not allowed to just ask questions. You know, someone like me, that's not like no one should vaccinate. We should get rid of them. I'm not saying that I'm not anti-vax. I'm just like, wow, when you look at the basic fundamental overview of history, something's up, (laughs) something's fishy. Can we just have a conversation about it? Because I'd like to learn and I'd like other people to learn too. And I'd like, God, my good friend who will remain unnamed lives in Austin. I mean, He's got a six-year-old kid that can't, you can't hug the kid. The kid won't eat anything and wipes his feces on the walls and was totally normal before a round of vaccine. So was that just a random accident? Um, I I don't know. Um, But something's up. And I think it's terrifying that we can't have a healthy conversation and ask questions or you're labeled as an anti-vaxxer that wants to hurt people and spread disease or something, which I, of course, don't want to do. So what's you know, what's your general take on the efficacy, the safety, the history, your your current perspective on that? Yeah. So I'm happy to provide you like a free um, kind of ebook that I wrote on the science of this topic. Oh, cool. Uh, actually, because I was able to get a paper published, a review that I wrote on the science. Um, I called it the psychobiology of vaccination. So the impact on the brain. Uh, so mood behavior cognition, um, including obviously this this question of autism, um, in a, a peer-reviewed index medical journal. So it's pretty. It's just fun for me when that happens, like when I can still uh, play in the the old house that I grew up in. And so I'm happy to provide that. But what I have found is that even the graphs you're referring to, and I, you know, my face lights up when you mention Kennedy, you know, because I just think he's doing such important work. But even those graphs. Skeptics will uh, argue, right? So what, what I have, <laughs> it's like, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. No, there's, there's no. Are they saying that the graphs aren't real? That the data is forged or you, you falsified? Can, you can endlessly debate the information, oh, okay. right? And so again, remember. I was like a massive proponent of vaccination. I was so psyched when the HPV vaccine came out when I was in medical school and as a as a then feminist who was interested in egalitarian feminism, you know, like how can I neutralize my womanhood so that I'm just like a man but I happen to bleed once in a while or I don't because I could take birth control for 12 years straight and then I don't even bleed. You know, that was my perspective. I was so psyched about that vaccine. So again, I not only uh, was of that perspective, but I also um, lived the scientific 
role of non-inquiry. Because when you're practicing consensus medicine and you're complying with the gold standard expectations, you do not do research. It's just the nature of the beast, right? So I did not research vaccination until I was prescribing medications to pregnant women, remember? And I had two women have second trimester stillbirths in the double flu shot season H1N1 2008, 2009. And remember, out of concern for liability, I was prescribing them medications. So I was very curious if my prescribing had anything to do with this. And it wasn't until then that I looked at the package inserts. Again, remember, I was a believer for this flu vaccine. And I saw there has never been any in black and white, never been any research on teratogenicity, carcinogenicity, or any um, of the relevant parameters to the fetus or, or pregnant woman. So I said, hold on a minute, you know, at least there's some registry data for Zoloft or Paxil or Abilify, and they just tell me there's nothing. And the, and and my patients got this at a CVS. Okay, so that's when I said, okay. hold on a minute, there's something to look into here, and I fell down a rabbit hole that I, uh, you know, unfortunately, I've never come out of where I've probably amassed something like 10,000 hours of research into the subject, taught myself immunology, which is distinct from vaccinology, um, and have really come to appreciate that there is a very, very large body of scientific literature that tells a totally different story than we are fed by the uh, powers that be about the safety and efficacy of this pharmaceutical product. The trouble is, there's so many of us who are debating the science, and it's really, it's a distraction tactic, I think, oh. because because I've been there and I've never right. changed a mind and I've never, you know, be, come out of a debate because I'm I'm happy to debate this. I mean, I, I I have the kind of mind that can catalog science pretty well and I I know it decently. You know, Dell is another one who's like that. Bobby Kennedy's there. There, say, or my partner. There are many of us. Suzanne Humphreys wrote a book called Dissolving Illusions about the history you're discussing. I, I don't understand how it could even be. There could be a question. About any of this, you know, when you finish when you finish that book, yet there is, and so that's how you know we are in the realm of belief, okay? And principally, this is almost a, a religious discussion, right? Where where you, debating Judaism and Islam, are you? Is there ever going to be a winner? Right. No. But can we <laughs> right. can we agree that the freedom to practice as you believe is paramount? And that's where many of us have come to is in the activism realm is the the importance of maintaining choice. Because I, I actually think that in the end, this is not really about any of the things that we might imagine it's about. It's not about any of these illnesses, which, you know, we have parents who've lived through these illnesses. We know that they're not what we are being told. I had chicken box. I know by contrast that it's not what I'm being told it is in the mainstream media today. So it's not really about the illnesses or infection control or can you possibly die of the flu? It's about does the government have the right to penetrate your body against your will? I really believe that's what it's about because when you give that up out of fear, because why else would you allow for that, right? When you give that up, it opens the door to all sorts of liberty stripping 
that serves a control-based paradigm. Right. Okay. To my mind, that's what this is about. So we can have our chittery chatter about measles and polio, paralyzing every whatever. We can do that. And I'm happy to do that. I've done it. But I actually see in the greater climate of what's happening, that is not what's going on. Right. And so if you understand basically that we cannot architect and engineer complex biosystems, including the immune system, right? We cannot, we do not know how to engineer healthy soil. Don't know how to do it. All we can do is get out of the way. We cannot engineer old growth forests, right? And by the same token, we cannot manufacture robust immunity. It is not something that we have the capacity to do, nor should we, frankly, because the innate intelligence of these complex systems far surpasses our capacity to engineer them at this point, maybe always, right? So if we acknowledge that, then we will question any intervention that seems to apply ever more of the same to compensate for the deficiencies of the you know initial intervention, right? So when you and I were growing up, the schedule looked quite different than 72 vaccines by you know age 16. It you know it was a handful. So what is that tripling, quadrupling of the schedule about? It's about compensating for the deficiencies of the vaccine-based effects relative to the natural you know emergent phenomena of immunity that used to be enjoyed. Right. So if you understand that pharmaceutical products cannot ever accomplish what they are telling you that they will. And by the way, this is true with every single pharmaceutical product. When you, know, when you take an antidepressant for depression, the data will tell you, you are at very high risk of something called tardive dysphoria, which is a very new and persistent kind of depression you never had to begin with that is induced by the medication itself and disability related to the taking of the, not uh, meaning like this is what Robert Whitaker exposed, meaning that literally you could be jobless and non-functioning in society as a result of your prescription. So, so the prescription that seeks to resolve a particular problem actually ends up perpetuating and complexifying said problem. This is true across the board from acid wow. blockers to antibiotics to vaccines. So if that's the your worldview and you're gonna kind of chase that dragon for the rest of your life and try and get ahead of the bad germs out there that are gonna kill your delicate body, then go go do your thing, right? And I and I hope and pray that as a parent you do not have to learn the hard way, you know, like your friend and like so many of my activist colleagues, right? However, you may be awakening to the fact that there is a whole propaganda machinery that is being rolled out to manipulate you and capture your fear. And you don't have to look farther than the fact that there have been no measles outbreaks since the Senate, you know, since the legislative window has closed, right? But if it's, you know, it's really just come on, come on, people, right? Like, do not be this suggestible. Because if you are, you are giving your power away. You're giving it away. And the consequences of that are legion, right? So if you're awakening to the fact that there's more to the story, you're going to do your own research, you're going to 
engage inquiry, right? You're going to identify your trusted sources. You're going to understand that mainstream media is 70% subsidized by the by pharma. You're going to understand the toothlessness of the FDA and all of the government employed regulatory bodies that this revolving door that they're all the same people. You're going to understand the foxes guarding the hen house. Then you're you're no longer able to be captured by the the fear-based propaganda. It just doesn't have any it's not going to have fertile soil, right? So you could I mean, I don't even believe in germ theory because I just don't believe it It holds up under scientific scrutiny. So if somebody sneezes on me or you know whatever on, on the subway, I don't really mind. If my kid is sick, I'm gonna drink from her cup because I don't have a belief system that allows that particular fear to take root. So it's your belief system, it's your perspective that gives the airtime to these fears, you give it airtime, right? And so we have to be really, really scrupulous about the things that we choose to be afraid of, right? And it's not to say we should never experience fear. I mean, that's how I thought I was living for a long time. Like I said, we, it's a natural reflex to feel afraid. I feel afraid of armed men coming to my house under martial law and taking my children and vaccinating them. That's a fear I live with every single day, right? So. Identify your fears, understand what they are, and subject them to interrogation and inquiry so that you can understand whether they are the best representation of your truth, right? So all that is to say that you know I'm happy to talk science. The science is totally fascinating. It tells an incredibly different story about the nature of immunity. You know, vaccines were developed 200 years ago before we even knew about DNA and the microbiome. So, you know, the, the, and then since 1986, there's been no further development, design, research into safety because of indemnification of the very industry that is now selling them. At scale, so this is not a product that is is even being subjected to the safety standards that your vehicle is, uh, let alone you know what it oh contains, what it contains, right? Which is right. all of these adjuvants and additives that again we didn't have the science to be concerned about when the model of the product was developed so many hundreds of years ago. So you know the science is pretty interesting. But it's really only interesting if you already have a native sense that something's up here. Right. Again, it's that validation. And right. for that, I am happy you know, to be of service. But I don't think it's something that we can um, debate about, nor should we, because that's not how we're gonna change minds. How we're gonna change the, 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 the landscape is to understand what it is to outsource authority. And under any circumstances, when you are trading liberty for safety, it's a deal with the devil. And we do it all the time. Every time I fly, oh my God, you should see me passing through TSA checkpoints. <laughs> I literally <laughs> could like blow a gasket at any minute because it's so triggering for me how we have traded our liberties. We have given them up. We've voluntarily given them away for the illusion of safety. And that's where, you know, where it all begins. Yeah. Because that's yeah. not where safety comes from. We'll be right back at you after this brief but important announcement. 
I've been into all things health and wellness for over 20 years, and I've taken every herb, every supplement. I've tried every practice, even some that I won't even repeat on the show because they're so embarrassing, quite frankly. But I've gone to extreme lengths to be healthy and feel good and be free of any sort of disorders or diseases. I plan to grow old gracefully, and so far, so good. But one thing that I've discovered over the past couple of years, based on a lot of research, experience, and also interviewing over 200 experts in the field of health, is that one of our main problems is exposure to blue and green artificial light at night. It's called junk lighting, and it trashes you. So I don't care how much you exercise, what supplements you take, what vitamins you take, if you're exposing yourself to technology like your phone, computers, street lights, car lights, any artificial lighting at night that is not red or amber color, you're playing yourself. I just, I got to tell you, and there is a solution to that. It's a company called Blue Blocks, and they make protective eyewear. Now, that sounds really geeky. They make really cool what look like sunglasses at night, but they block blue light. So you can go to blueblocks.com. That's B-L-U. B-L-O-X.com. Enter the code LIFESTYLIST and save 15% off their eyewear. They have different versions too. There's some that you wear during the daytime or on a computer or in early evening or the really dark ones that block out 100% of the harmful blue light at night. So you've got option there. You've got different frames and uh, they also do prescription and non-prescription and reading glasses. So they are hooking it up over at blueblocks.com. That's B-L-U. B-L-O-X, blueblocks.com. Check it out. And now, back to the interview. I remember after 9-11 and the Patriot Act was uh, was put in place, that was the first time I saw that. I thought, huh, wow, people are actually willing to give up their right. It basically means like the authorities can come in your place and just arrest you, take you away, lock you in prison forever with no trial, no jury, no nothing. That's what it equated to. And it's like, why? Oh, because 9-11, you know, and there's of yeah. course been, you know, in throughout a long-term history, many examples of that, how our freedoms are taken away based on on fears. But I, I'd like your approach there that it's like, we could, we could debate the science, the efficacy, the safety forever. And I think I would be on the side of someone like you who's actually put in the research, but you have people that are dogmatically just attached to this idea that we're going to get polio, measles, et cetera, if we don't vaccinate. And that that war, like the Muslim Jew war or whatever, is likely to never cease because everyone's going to come up with facts that sort of are curtailed by their belief system and their dogma. But rather, what we should really be concerned about is the freedom of choice and the totalitarian, yeah. the totalitarian nature of the system that's been developing for the past, you know, 60, 100 years, whatever it's been. And that, as you said, it, we're not that far from, you know, soldiers essentially breaking through your door and uh, immunizing your kids, you know, which is, Again, well, which is a yeah. major, major violation of, you know, your basic fundamental human and civil rights. Yes. On the other side of that, you have the people that are uh, of the belief that say you send your unvaccinated daughter to school that she's going to give another kid who is vaccinated a disease. And that is all uh, that argument to me, like scientifically, <laughs> I'm just like, but if they worked, your kid is safe. Well, right? You know what I'm saying? Like. How yeah, can, you know, because that's funnier. the thing is like, fuck you, you can't have a right to not vaccinate your kid because then your kid's going to put my vaccinated kid in danger. 
And then my my rebuttal to that is like, well, if your kid's vaccinated, you don't have anything to worry about because vaccines work, right? Right. So and, what, and- like, what do you think about the other side of the argument? Like, how would you be putting another kid at risk by not vaccinating your kid? Because that's, I think, what people that are even kind of reasonable on the sort of pro-vaccine side would say, well, you can't have that right because then you're infringing on the rights of my kid who's going to get sick because yours isn't. It's it's based on the concept of herd immunity, which is part of the um, coercive rhetoric on the side of vaccine uh, advocacy and administration, which is to say that like some 95% based on natural patterns of immunity uh, some 95% of us have to be uh, vaccinated in order for the vaccines to quote unquote work and these illnesses to be eradicated. And of course, you know, every adult walking around, which is a good 50% of the population is non-compliant with any measure of a vaccine implementation. Right. Um, <laughs> right. And so so that figure is is totally fictitious, not to mention that it's, it's a distortion of, uh, and a co-option really. Um, that's why of, of basic science. That's why I really cringe when people call it immunization because it's it, vaccination is not immunization. That that term is even reflecting a, a misunderstanding of what's being manufactured by the effects because vaccines do have effects, right? Now, efficacy is a totally different thing. And what I find funny is what's been scrubbed from the internet already is like you could, you could formerly search and if you worked in a hospital you could easily see that people who have been recently vaccinated by a live virus vaccine so like varicella or chickenpox um, were not allowed in the ICU why because of shedding right so this so it's even it's even worse than you're you're depicting because it's actually the vaccinated who if, if you you know believe in this certain model of contagion um, who are actually putting the unvaccinated at, at risk. <laughs> Oh my God! Shedding or even with pertussis, like the capacity to harbor um, an illness asymptomatically and and potentially spread it. But you know, but the real conversation and something I try to take on in in uh, own yourself is is can we have a conversation about illness first, right? Like, can we understand that actually there are different perspectives on on illness? And and my perspective certainly is that creating a life safeguarding for a life um, and pursuing a life that is free from illness is actually not a goal I have, right? And it's, it's, it's not a goal that anyone who has a deeper regard and respect for the body's innate intelligence has, because we don't see that health is the abs. That's the same argument that says suffering, struggle, grief, um, pain are all bad and you should avoid that at all costs, right? It's it's a very different perspective to say whatever I encounter, you know, symptomatically is an expression of something deeper, right? So in my perspective, um, in what we're calling infectious illness is often, and my uh, friend Larry Pilevsky is a, a renegade pediatrician who's been saying this for years based on his work back in the day where kids were not vaccinated from this stuff and he could see that their milestones were amplified post-infectiously, right? So a fever, right, actually serving an important priming uh, purpose for the immune system, for example. This idea that 
it's a, a detox mechanism, right? So throwing up, you know, pus, runny nose, vomiting, diarrhea, or diarrhea, sweating. All of these are ways of mobilizing cellular debris. Are they not, right? Are we going to debate that? Whether you think that that's the body being weak and and mistaken or vulnerable, or whether it's the body in wise response to something that it needs versus the neighbor who's exposed to the same germs and doesn't develop any of those symptoms, right? So the personalization of these experiences is something that either is meaningful or not, right? And to me, it's very meaningful because we we don't all develop the same symptoms with the same exposures. I mean, that's been borne out in, in the literature. And in fact, it depends on many things, including the state of mind, personal perceptions, and then of course, many biophysical parameters that are relevant, right? So it might also be important to reframe these illnesses as not being something to avoid, right? But if you're caught in the, you know, death is something to be avoided at all costs, including injecting an infant on the first day of of birth with, uh, you know, an aluminum containing vaccine, the most toxic element on, on the, the earth that is literally beneath the earth's crust, inaccessible to us without a single enzyme to help us metabolize it. Aluminum is something that babies should not be exposed to, right? So so either you're gonna pursue that at any cost, or you might be able to slowly inhabit a world where illness is actually a part of health. Then it's not something to run from forever. That is a, it's an exhausting way to live. It's an exhausting way to live, and so you know, reorienting around um, symptoms, illness, and health as being a part of a more intelligent design is actually really liberating. And my patients, you know, for a decade now, have lived pharma-free lives where if they develop pneumonia or bronchitis or UTI or whatever, it's something they turn towards, they're interested in, and they have learned how to navigate. They've learned how to support their bodies, so nothing freaks them out anymore. It is so much more uh, freeing to live that way, and that's the invitation I'm offering to anyone who's interested. Is you know, if that feels compelling to you, check it out. That's great. That's that's a very cool perspective. Uh, in closing that particular topic, and we'll we'll work toward wrapping it up for a while. Uh, I didn't get your your hard out time, by the way, so I'm just waiting for you to give me the you know the hangman's noose sign, like we got to go, because I'll go on forever. Trust me. Um, but <laughs> just in closing, and you know, with all due respect to your um, you know your kind of zoomed out overview on the issue, which I absolutely agree with. Do you see scientifically, medically, a direct correlation between our current vaccine schedule and autism specifically? So when I began to research beyond what's called the monoamine hypothesis of depression, so that's like the low serotonin theory of depression that is, um, you know, pervade through, uh, not only through, but even commercials, right, where you see the the Zoloft commercial with the little neurons with the bubbles floating across and and you're introduced to this idea that your chemical imbalance is at the root of your depression, right? And that idea is essential to the placebo effect that drives outcomes in pharmaceutical management of what's called depression. So when I began to look beyond that, I was introduced to the field of psychoneuroimmunology, which is now about almost 30 years in the making uh, in terms of scientific research. 
And I began to understand that the brain has an immune system. When I was in medical school, we didn't know that. We thought it was, this wasn't that long ago, right? We thought it was a privileged terrain. And now we know there are lymphatic vessels, you know, lining every blood vessel in the brain. So the brain has an immune system. That immune system in the brain is actually pretty decently worked out, is is largely mediated by something called microglia. And there are certain triggers to that brain-based immune response that principally have to do with gut integrity, um, but are also responsive to other things, including even psychosocial stress, um, let alone the you know, uh, penetration of, of the skin barrier with carriers like polysorbate 80 that directly traffic to the brain. They're actually included for that reason because they're brain penetrant, bringing these adjuvants, like I mentioned, like aluminum that can set off all sorts of alarm bells, right? So if you don't know about neuroinflammatory response, then if, of course, it's very implausible that there could be a mechanistic explanation for something um, like autism. And and remember that autism is in the, um, the realm of psychiatry. So psychiatry has adopted autism as a behavioral um, disorder and psychiatry by and large doesn't have um, any sort of representation of the, the, the science of, I mean, conventional psychiatry, the science of um, neuroinflammation, right? So it's all very convenient um, that, that it wasn't you know, adopted by rheumatology or by you know even neurology, where there might have been some window into the leg- legitimization of that perspective. But really, all you have to understand is that there is something called the gut-brain connection, um, and that neuroinflammation presents behaviorally in many cases. And then you can get farther into um, polymorphisms, meaning like genetic variants that make people more or less susceptible to toxic exposure or the loading of this seeming gun by things like, you know, um, electromagnetic radiation or ultrasound or glyphosate exposure. But there is, to my mind, not a single pharmaceutical intervention or exposure not, or non-pharmaceutical exposure that can result in such a dramatic clinical transformation overnight. Right, and it's not always overnight. Sometimes it's over months. Sometimes it's over weeks. But it can be, and there's almost nothing really like that under the sun, right? Like you can, you can have a smart meter next to your baby's crib, and it still would require some cumulative burden. But when it comes to vaccine exposure, because of understood pathways of neuroinflammatory storms, it's actually explicable. So you know, we could, we could again debate. All day long, what what's loading the gun? Whether it's genetics or it's <laughs> my favorite is um, increased diagnostic prowess. Like now we're just diagnosing better, and and you just, <laughs> didn't, you, just you just didn't notice your your classmate who was wiping feces on the wall, or one in twenty five of those classmates who were wiping feces on the wall when you were a kid. So you know, again, there's an obfuscation effort underway in service of protecting the the agenda of the dominant paradigm. And you know, so but the science it's existent now. Whether you want to explore it, research it, dismiss it, I always caution anyone who is interested in in exploring a topic 
to note whether there has been an effort to close the conversation. Right, so this has been true on almost every one of these controversial topics, whether it's you know GMOs or you name it. If the science is supposedly settled, that is an engagement of what's often called scientism. So the dogma and treatment of the use of science to a particular end and for a particular agenda, where any of us who have any intimacy with science know that it's a process of inquiry. It never is and never will be settled. Right. So when <laughs> when you hear that, and you'll hear it all the time with with vaccine related conversation and dialogue, you know the science is settled. That's been debunked. That's another one, right. uh, or that was already kind of figured out or whatever. There's no such thing. We're only ever asking more and more and more. And the models of toxicology, by the way, are predicated on a dose makes the poison type of investigation. And now we understand that there are cocktail based effects where low dose exposures, particularly in the case of stressed individuals or the root of administration is very relevant, can generate the conditions for danger signaling as it's sometimes called in the literature that has very unique clinical manifestations from person to person. So where one person develops acute onset juvenile diabetes, another person develops ADHD, you know, as a two year old, and I shouldn't laugh, it's not funny. Or another person, you know, develops diagnosable autism. The individualization of that danger signal is what can make very complex identifying the smoking gun. But we have the science to support how this could happen. Right. And um, and that's really you know again you have a friend in this position I know countless people in this in this position and it's kind of like the hardest hardest way to learn you don't want to become a vaccine activist because you were you were walked over the the coals of this kind of regression because no one will have your back the doctor who pushed the needle will close the door on you. You cannot sue the company and you may be literally forced by your state to continue administering these products that you know harmed you know, your, your child. So that's, that's what's at stake here and, and perhaps it should be. Because if we are going to allow doctors who are increasingly agents of the state to penetrate our children's body, I should hope we do a little research, right? And if you choose not to, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe that's a natural consequence. I hope to do whatever I can to gatekeep between you know that experience and those who are otherwise intending to just do the best by their children. Thank you so much for all that information. It's it's. I love the way that you frame the whole thing. And in observing this issue too, having not had kids yet, there's there's one thing. Again, I, I just, I always do things in very broad strokes. I'm not particularly scientific. It's more of like a common sense kind of gut feeling that leads me in the direction of truth. Yeah. Pretty uh, consistently. Yeah, yeah. But being in California and having some friends that are hippies and whatnot, um, there is a marked difference between the kids that have been vaccinated and not. I mean, I can almost tell when I meet a kid, if they've been vaccinated, they're going to be five or six years old. They're going to be brilliant. They're going to speak like an adult. They're going to act like an adult and they're just alive and awake. And there's just this 
I don't know, there's this energetic imprint of their having this robust vitality that is sadly um, not present in some cases, not all cases with kids that have been vaccinated. It's like an A-B test. And I'll ask the parents if, you know, if it's not a triggering conversation, I'll be like, hey, did you, you know, just curious, did you vaccinate? And they're like, fuck no, are you kidding me? We're homeschooling. Like they're all on board because in California, there's this, you know, you, you basically, you'd have to falsify medical records and things like that in order to not vaccinate and still have your kid enrolled in school. It's quite, it's a lot of hoops you have to jump through kind of, you know, outside of the system in order to just kind of exist. But that's one thing I've noticed for sure. And it's like, wow, I don't even need to know the science. I just need to look at this kid and look at that kid and go, that one seems to have a little more going for it. You know what I mean? For him or her. And it's just, it's just, it's an issue that I think is really important. And also one that's scary to talk about because of the censorship that we talked about earlier. And it's like, that fine line of like, do I want to get kicked off? Is it worth getting kicked off Facebook to potentially save one life? Probably. Probably. You know, Uh, then the other side is like, well, if I get kicked off Facebook, then all the other information that I want to share won't get out too. So, you know, it's, it's, it's an interesting conversation. I think that's why the agenda, which has been called Healthy People 2020 to have 100% vaccine compliance rates nationwide, part of that intentionally or unintentionally agenda is that you won't have that contrast available of the unvaccinated oh, right. child and the vaccinated, right? Because there are communities, you know, in New York, for example, where moms think it's normative to spend, you know, a good number of hours a year at the emer- in the emergency room to have your kid on antibiotics and steroids regularly and to live at your pediatrician's office, right? So if you don't know um, a homeschooling or, you know, unvaccinated community where children have literally never been to an emergency room, never had a nameable illness and don't even have a pediatrician. If you don't know that that's an option, then you could well be lured into the the new normative model, which is to say that this is a part of childhood. I mean, I remember my, my friend Larry, I mentioned, he told me that the the number of words that a two-year-old is expected to say today is something like 25% of what it was in the 70s. Like they change the normative wow. scale, the normative per- parameters, which you know has even happened with formula feeding and, and baby weights. You know, like this is something that with with in the realm of subjective uh, parameters can be done. So I think that that is uh, it's it's important that we be exposed to people making different lifestyle choices, if not only to sort of feel out, wow, is there something interesting there for me, you know? Wow, fantastic. Uh, I got a couple kind of lightning questions I'd like to throw at you before we sure. before we close here. God, because we've covered so much great stuff and I, of course, have notes. And then sometimes afterward, I'm like, oh, I didn't get to that thing. <laughs> In terms of issues like just general anxiety, depression, et cetera, where we could be told by the system that it's because we have these imbalances in our brain and we need to take drugs to put things back into balance, which I think at this point in the conversation is, you know, any listener could kind of doubt that that's an effective way to deal with it. What are some just immediate, I know you do a lot of lifestyle recommendations in terms of what to eat, what not to eat. What are some in terms of diet things that you would advise absolutely avoiding if you want to have a healthy brain and be in a good mood? Yeah. Yeah. So I have a very intense protocol that is, well, it's not very intense. By some parameters it is, but I bring kind of a Nazi-ish energy to it because it's one month of your life where you cut out with 
100% commitment, these things I'm about to list. I've also found as I soften and feminize um, that there is another path, which is kind of the bite sized path. So I have launched a membership called Vital Life Project that's in beta now and it's actually been pretty, pretty educational to me because people make little changes and they still see very high yield results. So there are many different ways to walk this path. But I would say like the top relationships to explore, if you wanna put it that way, would be with wheat, so gluten containing grains, with specifically cow dairy, but I include all dairy in, in that month, with processed sugar, so that doesn't include fruit or honey or maple syrup or molasses, right? Um, and then with alcohol and coffee. And then there's other restrictions, you know, like legumes and grains and that are included more for their kind of starch impact on the microbiome in my one month protocol. But like if there were to be um, one place to start that's a baby step, I often recommend swapping breakfast out for something that restricts all those things. So, you know, I've spent I don't know, untold hours sometimes on blogs that I write with like 50 references and all this stuff. And then I wrote one time a blog years ago on what I have for breakfast. And it's this like stupid smoothie that I made up, right? Without protein powder or whatever, that just is like kitchen ingredients, but is restrictive of all those things that I mentioned. And happens to be like high in natural fat and it tastes like chocolate milk and it's, I think, really tasty. And, and I'm, often compelled to consider if that's the most important contribution I have to make on (laughs) planet until I die. Because the love letters that we get about this smoothie are so outrageous and so confusing. Literally my community manager, Jamie, is only working for me now, she would say, because of this smoothie and how it changed her life. (laughs) So it's like something about starting your day with that, let's say non-inflammatory imprint, that can make a big, a big, a huge difference actually. And right. uh, so so yeah, I think that there is. And again, I came to all of these recommendations through the literature. I didn't say like, oh, I learned about this uh, this wellness retreat, like how to heal. And then I'm gonna look for the science for it. I came to each one of my recommendations because I found research on it. And then I implemented as, as a lifestyle intervention. Right. In terms of other interventions, um, addressing trauma, which I, I would say, you know, is obviously childhood trauma, et cetera, would be at the root of so many of our psychological issues, right? And neuroses. Uh, what have you got to say about things like EMDR, hypnosis, you know, yeah. alternative therapies like that? Have you seen any viability to to any of those? Neurofeedback, oh. any of that stuff? Hugely, hugely. I still am a believer in first chopping wood, carrying water. Like first picking, I'll mix a million metaphors, picking the low hanging fruit, right? So send your nervous system a robust and consistent signal of safety for 30 days. And that's what my approach is predicated on. It's like no cheating, no excuses, one month of your adult life, do it, right? So that's that discipline, right? That that you struggle with too, it's, it's like, can you choose to turn towards yourself, give your self-care the spotlight to an uncomfortable extent? Because it probably will take up about two and a half hours of your day if you do this, right? So it's it's a whole reframing and reprioritization of your life that involves, you know, a couple of minutes of a contemplative practice a day. Um, I'm 
training Kundalini yoga. So that's my bias, but it doesn't have to be that. I'm pretty clear about that. I don't care if you yeah. like pray, yeah. to, pray to your leprechaun, whatever it is, a couple of minutes every day where you sit and pause. Um, the dietary you know, profile I, I mentioned. And then for those who are considering coming off psychiatric medications or have severe illness, I'm um, very passionate about the coffee enema, which I learned from my mentor, Dr. Nicholas Gonzalez and completely changed my practice. Had I not learned it from someone who had 27 years of clinical practice putting terminal cancers into long-term remission, I probably would have rolled my eyes about it the way so many people do. Right. Um, but I am a huge believer and I have seen the before and after in my own practice what it, what it has done. And then again, it's the the impact of the ritual, right? So that I believe is a big part of the impact of this this thirty days. So that first, right. that first, because then if you don't engage those self controlled lifestyle changes first, you could have an army of like thirty healers you have to see every month, <laughs> you know, right. trying to chase your your right. pathology down or whatever. Um, but then it becomes clear what you have to turn towards and you have the energy to do it, right? Like when I was diagnosed with Hashimoto's, if I didn't get my act together, um, I would have been way down a tunnel. So probably my favorite easy intervention is um, EFT. So is is tapping or emotional freedom technique because it's self-administered. I'm very interested in self-administered technologies. Um, But then I also, I'm a huge, huge believer in the capacity of Kundalini Yoga specifically to begin to liberate the places in which we have stored um, trauma literally in our body, which also would have sounded like a very crackpotty concept um, had it not been for people like Dr. Candice Pert, who helped us understand that neuropeptides literally live throughout our our bodies, um, storing those little pockets of trauma-related stress. And then a lot of it is also unwinding perspective. Um, So I'm a huge, 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 relatively recent uh, Byron Katie fan. Oh, love her. I I mean, I just, I, I don't, I don't know that I would have been ready um, to receive her in the way that I have most recently <laughs> in my life, you know, before. Yeah, yeah. But again, she teaches us that there is a path out of victimization because that's the problem with trauma. It, Vanderkolk would say this, like it's bringing the past into the present. And there is a way out of victimization that involves the very seemingly controversial um, suggestion that those who have been traumatized or victimized understand their participatory role if even in a tiny way. Was there one little choice that you made, right? And it sounds insane to suggest. It sounds like, you know, it sounds like throwing salt on the wound or, or blaming the victim, right? But her her approach is so elegantly dovetailed with, with mine, which is to seek out all of the places we are still holding on to victim stories and, and outsourcing our agency. Because when you see that you had even a little bit of choice, like in, in some of the cases she talks about, like if you were you know, raped by your stepfather and you chose not to tell anyone, that may have been exactly what you needed to do, but you chose that, right? And in one case, I think it's so extraordinary, she talks about how the, the, with a girl, with a woman rather, who said, you know, I would have been beaten if I had said something. And Byron Katie says, well, that beating would have lasted, let's say, one day, you know. And here you have been for three decades, 
having this internal self abuse around it, this internal self beating, right? Suffering because of it. And and so her she encourages people who are ready and interested to take just a little bit of responsibility. Why? Because shifting out of victimization is essential for the healing of the nervous system. Feeling that you have choice, control, power, sovereignty. That's when you begin to engage the the more profound healing of the nervous system. So there are a lot of different ways. And I actually think people are attracted to the ways that are going to work for them. There's such an incredible menu out there um, that that's also a really beautiful aspect of the time we're in. Well, I like your approach of getting the basic, your basic fundamental energy system and nervous system kind of, um, you know, online before you go pursue the thousand healers and whatnot and take on all these different modalities and teaching learning systems and all that, because you will end up chasing your tail if you don't fundamentally address, you know, sleep, uh, you know, uh, limiting EMFs, blue light, just some of the basic stuff in your environment that'll totally jack you up, dietary things like you suggested. Um, but I have to say, it's funny, you, you know, I did, obviously those listen, I did not prep Kelly at all, but uh, the practice of Kundalini yoga has absolutely changed my life. And um, it's, I kind of take it for granted now. And it, I go through yeah. phases where I'm like more committed to my practice than other. Right now, yeah. I'm not that committed because my the class I like to go to starts at 9 a.m. And that's a stretch for me <laughs> in my current uh, circadian cycle. But um, I took teacher training and I, you know, I use Kundalini practices at, at my workshops and things like that. And it's, it's an amazing thing to share with people. So that's been huge for me. And one of my favorite teachers is Dr. David R. Hawkins. And like Byron Katie, he has a way to really kind of pattern interrupt people that follow his teachings. And he's, he's dead now. I was thankfully went to his last talk in Sedona years ago before he died. Wow. And, you know, people would come on stage and talk about, well, I was abused, you know, uh, by my stepdad, you know, again, 40 years ago. And he'll literally sit there and he was a psychiatrist for well-respected for 50 years and then became a spiritual teacher. And he just go, well, they're not doing it to you now. So what's your problem? And you're listening going like, oh my God, did he just say that? He's supposed yeah. to be a spiritual <laughs> teacher, but he's very like, that pattern interrupting. And I think that's what Byron Katie is so good at. It's like, well, um, you know, I can't be successful because I'm not smart enough. And the inquiry in, in Byron Katie's The Work, who's been a guest on the show, thankfully, it was amazing. Um, oh, is amazing. like, well, is that is that thought true? Yeah, it's true. Well, can you really know that it's true? And there's, you know, this whole series of questions that is the f- fundamental yeah. basis of her teaching. But it really is like getting outside of yourself and giving yourself that objective point of view where you question the things that you're really believing that are holding you back. And sometimes it does take a teacher that's a little bit, I don't want to say confrontational, but this doesn't yeah. buy into your shit, that doesn't buy into your story and actually challenges you to take a, a more objective look at your current situation, you know? And yeah, I think Tony I think- Robbins is really good at this too. If you watch his interventions, you're like, yeah. oh my God, did he just say that? You know, like he's being so mean to this person. It's like, no, he's getting them unstuck from a thought pattern that they can't get out of because that's, they're too close to the painting. They can't see the landscape, you know, because they're just, they're too wrapped up in that sort of self-centeredness in that moment. And I, I just love teachers and teachings that challenge you to rise up and really have the courage to face the bullshit that is between your ears. <laughs> totally. And I, I respond to that, I think in part because it's been, I've been told anyway, part of the impact that I've had, like that's the way I relate to my patients is I don't, they could be 
literally neurologically disabled from you know psych med taper, actively suicidal, having not slept for many, many months, not eaten solid food for many, many months. And I still treat them like able adults. And often the husbands of my patients are the ones who who are really pretty terrified and and um, you know don't know whether they should be calling nine one one or all this stuff. But there is something to to treating someone like a capable, well individual, even when they're showing you that they're extremely vulnerable and struggling, that brings them into that template. When other people might coddle them, right? And that's, I think, collectively what often happens is we is the system coddles the victims, and it feels very validating, you know, to be told something's wrong with you. But in fact, then you're kept in this dependent, childlike position. And so, yeah, I really, really resonate with approaches that reflect back our our stronger, more adult capacity. Yeah, it's like one of the positive outcomes of cognitive dissonance, right? <laughs> it's like yeah, what exactly. what does not compute does not compute, and that can go one of two ways. But one of the ways is awakening, and you're like, oh, whoa, whoa, you you snap out of it. I mean, I've had this happen so many times. I'm in what might be called um, a panic attack. I I don't label yeah. it as that, but from the outside, yeah. you're having a whiteout, right? Your amygdala yeah. just fucking dumped. However that works, you, I'm probably not saying it right, but you're, you're full of cortisol and adrenaline and you're just freaking the fuck out when in reality, nothing's wrong. Your brain Nothing. is just snapped on you. And then someone has the ability to come in and just go, wake up, you know, and that, that sort of um, the jarring experience of being awakened in that moment allows you to kind of go, oh my God, I was just caught in a dream. I was just dreaming. That was not exactly. reality. And that's that's such a powerful spiritual practice to be able to do that for yourself or have teachers or teachings that enable you to to access that of breaking the kind of self-hypnosis as Yogi Bhajan would call it, right? Where you're like yes. you're allowing your mind is hypnotizing you into this false narrative. And it's often being supported by people around you or by media inputs, et cetera, that are interested in indoctrinating you into continuing that pattern of self-repression, but that awakening does take courage and it does take some um, thick skin. You know, you have to have a real tenacity and and a deep desire to awaken, to allow someone or something to awaken you in a way that's a bit harsh uh, at the outset. So I love that approach. Tell us where we can find, you you mentioned um, you had a download or something about uh, the vaccines. I'll send that your way. Okay, cool. We'll put it in the show notes. And then um, give us anything you want to give us, social media, websites, et cetera, so people can come learn more from you because even at two hours and 25 minutes, which is, we've been on, we've been on <laughs> this for a while and I'm still like not even done, but I, you know, I know you got to go and I got to go. So we'll, we'll do another time. It's just, when I talk to someone as brilliant as you, honestly, and I'm not kissing your ass, I just think you're so smart and awake and amazing. Um, it's hard for me to stop and I'm sure the audience wants more too. So give us any links or anything you want to give us. I am just reflecting back to you, your own brilliance. You know that. So yeah, no, it's it's really a pleasure to have this kind of conversation. And, and that's a part of my ask at this moment where the book is is being released is, you know, I was thinking to myself the other day about pre-orders because in the publishing world, pre-orders are kind of a big deal. And it's it's how you send a signal to, you know, the the book world and book buyers that this is a message that people care about, right? And so I was thinking, well, gosh, I just want, I want this huge number of pre-orders. And then I really was able to get quiet about like, why? 
right? Because if I don't think I'm saving lives, then then why? And I was able to really understand for myself that I want to feel the safety that comes with living in a world where people share my reality. And that's part of why I love talking to you, right? Is is not because I want to preach to the choir or be in an echo chamber, but because this feeling that there are enough of us that share this reality is a feeling that comes to me when people, you know, support the message by buying a book that is otherwise going to <laughs> be be burned <laughs> in the in the pile, right, of of censored material. And so I'm asking for uh, people who do buy own yourself to throw a selfie on social media. Let me know you're out there and let everyone else know that you're out there because as you well know, even in conversation with me, it does take a degree of, of courage and it is an energetic vote, right? To to stand with this kind of a message. So obviously it's available in mom and pop bookstores, which I am very encouraging of the support of in this particular climate, but then also on Barnes and Noble, Amazon, etc. And you can find me just at kellybroganmd.com otherwise for tons of free material if if supporting the book doesn't feel and flow right now. Cool. In closing, who have been three teachers or teachings that have influenced your work that our audience might be able to go learn some more from? Oh, yeah. So my entire life changed when I read Anatomy of an Epidemic, which is by Robert Whitaker, who's an investigative journalist who really blew the lid off of through the research, through the science, um, but not industry funded literature of everything I had assumed to be true about psychiatric um, medications. I am a massive fan of Alan Watts. Oh, nice, nice. <laughs> and I yeah. feel like we must have had some past life dalliances or something because I feel like a, a great degree of sadness often that he's not walking the earth any longer. And I don't know what that's about. I don't feel that for Carl Jung, who I also deeply um, admire and have learned from. But I, I, I just, whenever I'm in the shit, I put a Alan Watts video on and I just listen to his voice and I feel like a, a sense of okayness inside. And then I'll, I'll put a plug for my friend Charles Eisenstein I mentioned um, because his book, The More Beautiful World Our Hearts Know Is Possible, really was a part of my shifting out of this endless fight, the endless effort to control, which you, you know, you've noted and we discussed can be an outgrowth from you know, being in the matrix. Sometimes you can bring all the elements of the matrix with you to the holistic realm and lifestyle realm and and how to heal that. I think um, he wrote a book called Ascent of Humanity, which I read in a 72 hour trip to Australia and back. It's like 700 pages. And I always thought, you know, if my kids were to to read one book that would teach them um, what's behind the veil on just about every topic, it would be that that book. But he's a brilliant philosopher and and really an escort into this, this new way of being that is beyond Uh, warfare internally and externally. So yeah, I'd say those three. Cool. Thanks for the recommendations. That's great. I always ask that like air quotes for the audience, but I'm also interested too, (laughs) because I interview so many fascinating people. I'm like, you're really cool. What's upstream from you? Like, who did you learn your shit from? You know, so I like to give out some breadcrumbs for myself and the audience. Well, listen, thank you so much for joining me today. It's great to have you back on the show. I'm glad 
we had time today to really like take a deep dive and and, awesome. and uh, not be limited to your usual hour long cookie cutter podcast format. We were able to like get weird here, which is um, what I always, <laughs> but I, I mean that in the best sense, what I always hope to do. So thank you did. for, thank you for what you're doing in the world and what you brought to the show. And I really look forward to uh, talking to you again. Likewise. Thank you. Thank you for, for allowing for this conversation. Awesome. Thanks. Take care, Kelly. I'll talk to you soon. Ciao. Bye. Well, I hate to say I told you so, but I warned you this was going to be a deep episode. I'm hoping that it ruffled your feathers a little bit, got you thinking. And more than anything, I'm hoping it got you thinking enough to share this with a few of your friends. As I always say, that's the best way you can support the Lifestylist podcast. You can also support Kelly by buying her new book that actually came out today. It's called Your Own Self, The Surprising Path Beyond Depression, Anxiety, and Fatigue to Reclaiming Your Authenticity, Vitality, and Freedom. And God knows we talked a lot about freedom in this episode. And I'm all about freedom of speech and um, somehow getting around this horrific big tech censorship. Big Brother is watching, man. They're watching. They're probably watching me on my webcam right now. It used to be a conspiracy theory. You know, that your devices were recording, listening to you, selling your data, spying on you. And now it's widely known and us dumbass civilians just go, oh, that's cool. I like my Alexa. Well, I don't use any of that shit. I keep my phone in a protective case that blocks anyone from finding what's on it. Um, I should actually be super paranoid and put black tape over my, uh, you know, computer camera, but I haven't gotten that far yet. Uh, But that said, um, I love doing shows like this. I love doing shows that get people thinking, that get me thinking, that uh, rile people up a bit. So hopefully mission accomplished. And, um, you know, as always, follow your own truth. Listen, if you, you know, want to go get a flu shot or an HPV shot at the local CVS, it's on you. Go for it. Good luck with that. Uh, I would highly advise against it. But um, point being... I do believe in freedom. I am a true libertarian. I believe in human liberty and the God-given right to freedom. And so many of those freedoms are being taken away. It's really sad to watch uh, because so many of us are just sheeple sitting there with our necks cricked down, staring at our phones, hypnotized (laughs) by the dopamine-inducing technology. You know, I'm raising my hand right here, you guys. You can't see me, but, you know, guilty as charged. I'm hella addicted to my phone. And I'm sure I'm being programmed by the goddamn thing, just like most people are. But I'm waking up slowly. I was red-pilled many years ago, and um, I've seen behind the veil of the Matrix. And it's my job, or at least part of my job, to open the curtain and let you see it too. So thank you for joining me and allowing me to have that um, privilege and luxury. Get over to lukestory.com forward slash store. You're going to find not only all of my sponsors, but every cool thing that I've ever discovered in my entire life that makes you healthy and happy. It's all in my store, including Organifi, Beekeepers Naturals, and Blue Blocks, our three sponsors for today's episode. And those are great products, just like everything that I use as sponsors on the show. I use all this stuff myself, and it's all super high quality. You will not find cleaner and more potent bee products on the planet than Beekeepers Naturals. Blue Blocks make some great blue blocking glasses. And of course, Organifi. I'm on this stuff every day. Boom. Green juice every morning. Done and done. So uh, I try to make it as easy as I can. So again, you can find all that stuff over at lukestory.com forward slash store. And that's where you find your discount codes too. That's what's up. All right. Thanks so much for joining me. 
I'll be back in your eardrums, penetrating your skull with the Mexico show next Tuesday, recorded on location on a biodynamic farm on the coast in Mexico. Fantastic episode, really fun one to record. I'm looking forward to doing more shows on the road, so you can stay tuned for those. And make sure you share this episode with a friend. Big blessings to you and yours. See you next week. This episode of the Lifestylist Podcast was produced by podcastmasters.net.